Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Justin Wood, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So tell me a little bit about your background. Um, I grew up in uh, Doylestown, and that's just a nice um, suburb and a, nice, a really nice place to grow up. And uh, um, I guess, you know, how I became interested in art um, I think like a lot of kids, I enjoyed like doodling and um, I think I was always just drawing, um, but it wasn't, I, I don't I think compared to some other artists that I know, I, I have the sense that I wasn't as sort of maybe um, sort of serious or intense about it as, as some of them, but I always did draw and I always enjoyed it. And um, uh, But in later in high school, though, I started to become a little more serious about it and uh just taking the art class i would always take the art classes as the as electives and um where i made my first painting and, and, and acrylics and then uh, uh oils too eventually um not that i or anyone else had any clue as to, to what we were doing but um it was still fun and uh, to to try to you know make a make a picture uh, and to try to make it look real Again, even though you're just kind of going on your instincts and there's there was no real instruction or anything. But it, it was enough of a taste to um, know that I, I, I really liked it and I wanted to do more of it and I wanted to learn how to do it. And, and of course, in high school, you have to sort of begin to try to figure out what you're going to what you're going to do uh, with with yourself and in your life. And uh, I. I didn't really know that I wanted to be an artist, but I, I kind of knew that I didn't want to have a real job or a regular job, or I couldn't imagine myself in some sort of like office and, uh, you know, wearing a suit every day and going to some building uh, just didn't appeal to me. But I'm, I'm sure that doesn't appeal to any real high school kid or, or a few at least. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I, I at least began, began to have a sense of, um, there, there's something about art and picture making that, that, that excites me more than the other sort of options. Um, so um, once it came time to sort of pick colleges, um, uh, going to an art school didn't really appeal to me. I, I, uh, I felt like I wanted to go to a regular college that had a a good art program and I, I don't know really why I, I guess I didn't really feel like an artist and I felt like just a regular whatever that means um uh and I, I I felt like I was just a regular person and I wanted to be around regular people but do art or something and I had this idea in my head that art schools were like weird and um I didn't feel like I was that type of person and uh who knows where I came up with any of that stuff hmm. I'm sure it's uh, just weird biases that you create in your head um, but also I think some of it was was rooted in something 
true in that a lot of these a lot of art schools these days are, are also it's it's more abstract programs and uh, modern sort of things that was never something that was interested I was never interested in that and so um, uh, I eventually um, kind of settled on the idea that I would go to a college that had a good illustration program because then you start to look at colleges and you start to look at the painting programs and every even in in college in the regular sort of colleges everything seemed to be uh, um, sort of more of an abstract and, and modern uh, curriculum and again that just didn't wasn't something I was interested in so it seemed like and I and I liked old master paintings I didn't know a lot about them but I, I like I really liked Caravaggio when I was in high school um, and that was the sort of, uh, I, I like the, and I really love the figure um, and, and portraits. And, and uh, so I, I, it seemed like a college illustration program was as close as I would be able to get to doing that sort of thing. And um, so I eventually went to um, Syracuse University and they have a decent illustration program. and. Um, when I was there, I was taking as an elective uh, figure drawing classes with an artist named Jerome Witkin, and that was sort of my uh, real moment of kind of realizing um, what I wanted and what what excited me, and that was drawing the figure from life. Um, uh, and even though the the way they set that up was not like it would be at an atelier, so it was the poses were much shorter and and faster. There, um, but Jerome Wicken was a, a a realist representational painter, figurative painter, and he worked from life. So he did um, uh, throw in long poses where we would have uh, we would like half the class would be doing these quick sort of things um, but then at the end we would do like a long pose and then we would sort of return to that pose uh, the next session uh, and so we had uh, I don't know how many but we had a, a number of sessions to sort of work on on the same sort of painting and uh, that's was also a realization it's like in order to have the opportunity to make something that doesn't entirely stink, you need to spend a lot of time and energy on it. So I, I was happy that, that that it was kind of giving us that opportunity, even though the work I did there was, of course, not good. Um, but again, it, it sort of it helped me sort of see the path that I, I wanted to sort of be on. Um, and then uh, after I, uh, um, and I, I wasn't the, the most, focused or, or dedicated illustration student again I was I was sort of just doing that because it felt like it was it was like as close as I get could get to the, the real thing and the only class I ever really was interested or did well or worked hard in was that figure drawing class um, just one then, class uh, one class that's it that's yeah, the only class you really connected only, with it was the only well, I, I, I liked some of my illustration classes, and, I, and some of the professors were really great. But again, it, it, was, it didn't feel like where my, um, my passion was. Um, uh, what really excited me was, was that figure painting and drawing class. And mm. that's what I felt like I wanted to do. Um, and so uh, I, I, get, I, I guess it was in my last year or whatever, trying to figure out that next step. What am I going to do after? Because I didn't. I didn't really feel like an illustrator, and also illust that whole 
world of illustration it was just dying it was it was just a dying sort of world and even our instructors were kind of telling us I, we had um, one instructor who was funny he would always his sort of mantra was uh, you, you, you would always say this to the class you're you're all doomed you're doomed and then he would like laugh uh, but he was also like he was telling us the truth and he was being real with us and and i even though it was funny and we kind of were like ah we, and we didn't fully understand what he even meant by that hadn't really is we hadn't been out in the real world yet but it was it was kind of true and uh and it, that always sort of stuck with stuck with me um so what the, years the, were these that you were in college from 2001 to 2005. okay i feel like illustration was already dead by then completely it, it, yeah it basically yeah. was um and they essentially said as much and um and that also at that time was when computers started to really become, uh, it was still very early, but that was when like, but they had just brought in Photoshop to the school and they were working in a sort of a digital component to the, um, to the curriculum. And I definitely didn't, I, I'm just not a really a computer person and that didn't really appeal to me. I, I just wanted to draw and paint sort of the old, like the old masters. That was sort of what I, what I felt like I wanted to do. Um, and uh, um, and also, you know, I also was able to sort of restructure my illustration. My last year, I when I, when I kind of became more sort of um, uh, aware of what I wanted, I um, I talked to some of my illustration professors, and I was like, I don't want to be an illustrator. I want to be a painter, and I want to just do one big project per semester instead of having to do these. Uh, fast turnaround um, little paintings that I uh, um, uh, that that is uh, that they would have us do, and they were all really cool about it, and they let me do it, and um, so I just kind of created my own little um, sort of projects, um, and I made a couple like large multi-figurative paintings that were where again it's just somebody who's just fumbling and kind of in the dark with and. Um, I had no real idea what I was doing, but I was excited about it, and um, I was trying. And uh, and and again, it was it was just all it's all like um, it all kind of gets it's it's sort of the, the those beginning steps that sort of put you on, on the path that, that that you're looking to find. And uh, so I'm uh, I'm glad that it led to me led to where I ultimately went and. So anyway, after I started to try to, um, and also I think at that time I, uh, Jerome Wicken, who was the um, the the figure painter, um, who I really liked and kind of tried to really sort of um, get as much from as I, as I could, and and he was a uh, uh, he had gone to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, Philly, and he told me like I should go there. Um, because him, him and I, I think we're kind of like-minded in, in the in, in uh, picture the types of pictures we wanted to make. Not so much sub. Not he was kind of wild and crazy with his his and sort of dark too. Um, he had a lot of like uh, sort of crazy like holic. He was um uh, he's an old Jewish guy and he uh, uh, the Holocaust was like a something that was really sort of. Uh, Part of his um, his his life and his he wasn't of course and he was too young but 
I think his family and people he knew, but that was a, an experience that really affected him and was, was a part of his art. And um, uh, that, that uh, so, so it wasn't really, I, I didn't want to make those types of paintings, of course, but I did like the, uh, it was more just the figurative and realism and stuff, but he, he kind of helped sort of um, uh, tell me sort of what you could possibly do after college. So he sort of turned me on to the Pennsylvania Academy, and then after I graduated, I, I, I um, tried to put a portfolio together, and I ended up applying there and had an interview and, and applied and all that. Ended up not getting in, which was definitely for the best because that place was, it was really expensive. And um, it also, it, it, it's not really what it was in back in the day. It used to be much more traditional-based um, school. Um, um, but it, it, it sort of had become a much more sort of uh, modern program. And, um, uh, and Did you know that going in when you applied? Not, not really, because I was so green and so ignorant to the sort of the, 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 the larger art world. And, um, but when I was there, it was like there was kind of a – when I toured there, it was still very exciting. I was like, wow, I want to go here. It was also because I didn't know about anything else. I didn't know about Florence Academy. I didn't know about Grand Central. I didn't know about Ateliers yet. So to me, that was like uh, another step closer to the – even though it wasn't, didn't seem exactly what I wanted, it, was a step, it felt like a step closer. And, and also it was like, well, that's all there is out there. Um, it's this or nothing. And um, – but what I was really struck by that place is when visiting um, the building and seeing their cast hall, they have an amazing cast collection of like a 19th century uh, cast and they're just incredible. And I was struck by that there was nobody in that room. Nobody <laughs> seemed to be interested in those things or drawing those things at all. And um, that was, I thought that was strange. And um, I mean, you don't think, I didn't think too much about it because maybe it was just, maybe that class wasn't meeting when I was there or something like that. But it was just a, not a soul in there. It was completely empty, um, but a, an amazing, amazing collection. And that was really what was most exciting to me about that school, um, uh, those those old sculptures and stuff. And um, uh, and 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 also just it, the, the school itself is so old. Where even though it has become, it's evolved and changed a lot. It's still the building itself and all this. A lot of stuff in the building is that old world stuff that was really what I was interested and excited about. Yeah, but they have their own gallery there with old paintings, and um, I thought it was a really cool place. And I and um, and I was pretty upset when I didn't get in. And then I was kind of like, well, now I really don't know what to do. Um, so I was just kind of um, uh, I had moved back home after I graduated, and um, uh, I was just working at a golf course, caddying, which was something I kind of grew up doing, um, and just trying to I don't know, just trying to figure out what I was going to do, and um, I, I don't know when, but at some point I, I stumbled upon, um, it was probably, you know, when I was searching from looking at the, at the grad schools, like Pennsylvania Academy and New York Academy, it eventually sort of, uh, I somehow through that found um, uh, Florence Academy. It was probably through like looking at the alumni list. And then I found an alumna, someone who went to Pennsylvania Academy, New York Academy, who had also went to the Florence Academy. And then, I, once finding the Florence guy, that was what, what really like was to me a, um, a a moment that was just really like um, a moment where you really sort of like, oh my goodness, that's the thing that I, I want. And that's what I've been looking for. It felt like I was, I found the thing that I was looking for. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, um, I kind of immediately started to try to get a portfolio together. I bought the Charles Bard book, which had just come out. I, um, in the back, there's this little tutorial that Graydon Parrish wrote about how to do site size and um, how to like, so I, I, um, I bought a cast, a plaster cast, and I set it up in my parents' basement and tried to, to sort of, best I could on my own, to try to do the site size method uh, and to do a cast drawing. And um, I sort of instantly made the best drawing that I had ever made because <laughs> I didn't know how to draw, but site size, um, even if you don't know how to draw, it, it can get you uh, um, just through that mechanical means of relaying the, the, the sort of the, the series of proportions over to your to your paper, you can get something or a super accurate w- without having to really know how to draw. I mean, obviously, to, to make a good drawing, you, you have to know how to, there's more to it than just site size. And to make a good drawing, you have to, to know how to draw. and um, but just getting the basic proportions set up, uh, uh, I, I found that method to be amazing. And I thought it was like the secret of the masters. And I thought, oh, that's how they were all so good at drawing and this and that. And, um, you know, I, I spent that uh, whatever amount of time that, that year trying to get uh, enough things together in order to be able to send an application to Florence Academy. And I remember that I met, um, or I found out there was a guy who lived in the Philly, Philadelphia area named Dave Larned, who had went to Florence Academy, and I had sent him an email and asked if I could come meet him and see a studio and if he was be willing to share whatever he could about that that experience in that world and and what he does in life as a, as, a, as an artist. And um, he was really nice, and he had me out um, to his place and. Um, uh, his wife happened to be Sarah Lamb, who was one of the original kind of Grand Central or, uh, GC, GCA people back then. It was Water Street FBA, Jacob Collins's um, school. And so she told me about Jacob Collins, and then um, I had not heard of him at that point and, and went home and looked up his school and, and immediately I had the same feeling when I looked at his stuff as I did when I discovered Florence Academy. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's great schools. and um, uh, now I think I kind of want to go to his school, but I ended up applying to both and, and, um, I went up and, and met Jacob and saw his studio and I really liked that. And, um, he, I, I loved his work and, um, and the student work too. And, uh, I eventually made the choice to go to, uh, New York and study at Jacobs instead of the Florence Academy. It was a little more practical. Um, yeah, a little. <laughs> it's like two hours away, right? Right. It was yeah. uh, I, it was a lot easier to move there than to Florence, and it was a lot cheaper too. When I started at Water Street, it was only three hundred dollars a month, and it was in Jacob's studio. Yes. And wow. He, he, originally, it was set up in that way because it was added. It was only like twelve to fifteen students, and it was in his own um, in his own studio at his house. So. There wasn't much overhead, so all he needed really was money for models and some basic studio supplies. So he was able to keep costs super, super low, which was great because so much of us just didn't have a lot of money to to, to spend on tuition. And um, so this was almost twenty years ago, though. So that's 
I don't yeah, know, 500 bucks today, right? It's expensive. <laughs> yeah, now it's like an institution. And it's, it has no, no, to no. Be. What I mean is just with inflation, to put it in perspective, that might be like $500 today or something. Oh, yeah. I don't, which, I don't even. Which still is not. Well, still is not that, bad. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you're thinking, if you're comparing it to like a grad school education, which is like, even though you don't get it, it's not accredited, it's still the equivalent of, let's say. Yeah, it's still um, a really great deal. Yeah, um, but so I ended up going to to to, to study with Jacob, and um, and uh, that was that was that that was my first real, I guess, step into that the world that we're in now. So he doesn't teach sight size, though, right? No, Jacob didn't. And I remember having a little bit of a panic attack when I went to meet him and I interviewed him and stuff, and um, I remember how I was. I thought it was, I, I wasn't offended. I was, I thought it was funny and it was a little, and I, could, I felt, it felt too like a little bit of almost like a, like a power play sort of like the way, how quickly he went through my portfolio. I had this, I bought this like fancy metal portfolio and I got the printouts and put it all in because that was before like people had websites. And um, so I had a printed out portfolio that I brought with me and I was, was somewhat proud of it. Um, and I remember he like spent two seconds just going through it. Was, oh. He like even laughed at some of them. And I was like, no, for real. <laughs> but no, it, he wasn't, I'm making it sound worse than it was. It okay, was just, okay. it's, and if you know Jacob, it's like, that's kind of just, it's a little bit how he is. And and he kind of, um, and, and if I, and, and, and believe me, me looking at that portfolio now, I would have the same reaction. <laughs> there's nothing worth spending time looking at this. And all he wanted to see was intent. He just wanted to see that you wanted to do this thing. And he didn't expect anyone in, in uh, before having gone there to really to, 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 to be any good or to, to sort of know what they were doing. So um, he was just looking to see that you wanted to really learn how to do this stuff. And, yeah, um, yeah. But I do, that was uh, something, the memory that, that sort of stayed with me, the, the way he said, just uh, sort of went through it and um <laughs> and then and then he you know he does the things too where he's like ah you don't want to be an artist it's too hard just get you just get a real job and so he kind of does that sort of stuff and it's just to test you to make sure and also to kind of be real with you and honest with you um uh that it's it's a really hard way to go and um most people probably aren't able to sustain a, any sort of real career doing it it's, it's just so hard and um but but uh i i uh i was really happy that i did go study with jacob and i like i love the, the the world that he's kind of created up there and i'm i'm happy to still be be a part of it not as much as i used to because i moved further away from the city i'm not able to teach as much as i did but um but i i um i, I feel like I, I, I found where I, I belonged. Oh, that's great. So at what point was it um, Jerome Wiccan that introduced you to the option of fine art or did, were you familiar with fine art way back in high school? I, mean, I when was, did it... but I didn't really know anyone that did it and it, yeah, he was definitely the one who's like, he was a real, painter, a real artist. Um, he wasn't an illustrator. He was a fine artist. And, um, and th in my experience, my time at Syracuse, I, I eventually became aware that that's what I wanted to be. Um, and he, he definitely helped 
sort of uh, steer me in the right direction and um, mm. uh, give me a direction to kind of go in after um, Syracuse. Man, what a blessing you got. You got rejected from uh, the Philadelphia Academy. Is it Philly Academy or Pennsylvania Academy? Yeah, Pennsylvania Academy. Pennsylvania it, Academy. it was a total, total blessing. And um, even though I was disappointed at the time, I'm so, I'm so glad that um, uh, that I never went there. <laughs> I don't yeah. Think it's, it's, I don't think it offers what I was looking for. Yeah. You know, as you were talking, I think about that beautiful building. I haven't seen it, but Carlo Russo attended that school. And he told uh-huh. me, he told me a lot of the same things about that cast hall and all those, that beautiful building, beautiful environment. And, you know, I'm from back East, so I know that there's a lot more history back there. But um, I think about that and I think it it feels almost like like it's this beautiful exterior with a cancer inside it and that's how i see some of these institutions it's like from the outside they look like this wonderful thing with these beautiful cast halls and this beautiful architecture and this inspiring history but then but then what's happening is as you put it just a lot of weird stuff going on yeah they um uh, unfortunately but also kind of understandably um they didn't really maintain their their original sort of vision and values and they sort of um when when the 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 times and and the sort of trends changed they they followed that and um it's a shame and uh from at least my point of view um mine too like yeah i mean whatever it's like that stuff is gonna happen probably and i think as long as i feel like it's it stinks because that place used to be awesome and now it's not and yeah it's like they don't it's almost like they don't deserve to be in that building they should be in a different that's (laughs) That's how i feel that's how i feel yeah i I wish we could just sort of take it from but you know whatever there's that stuff it's like that sort of thing exists everywhere and and you know at the end of the day i'm just happy and grateful that i was able to find the place that did offer the thing that I, that i wanted and um uh, it's a shame that 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 place kind of has changed uh, in my opinion for the worse but you know it's it's okay and um that's probably the right place for some people and certainly the wrong place for for others and uh again i'm just glad that i there's a place that 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 uh exists and places that exist that that's right for me and, and other people like me yeah at least that's the, that's the attitude i try that's the positive attitude i try to yeah yeah uh, it is it is incredible how much opportunity there is now that wasn't out there yeah, it's, it's, 20 it's, years ago oh, the world the world is in terms of the atelier world has changed so much since when i first started and when i first started there was like you could go to Florence Academy. You could go to Charles Cecil School. Um, you could go to Jacobs, and um, I guess Lack was Richard Lack still around his studio. I don't, I don't even know. But there was like there was only a handful of places, and now it's like there's millions of ateliers now, and um, I, I think that's great. I, I, there's it's all give and take, and there's probably good and bad that comes along with more options now. Um, I wonder if it waters, if it sort of dilutes or waters down some of the the potency of, of, of any given school. Because back when I was studying, like 
there were so much, there were so fewer options. So there was more, probably, I don't know if there was more people trying to get into the same place because I think fewer people knew about it. Um, but it was like, if you did eventually discover these types of schools and you did have a strong feeling and desire to do them, um, it's almost like there was a, um, the, the, the talent wasn't as spread thin as it might be now, because again, now, like then you had to, if you wanted to learn how to do this, you had to go to New York to do it or, or Florence to do it. Whereas now if you want to, and, and if you lived in Kansas, well, you either go pick up and move or, or you, you don't, or you stay where you're at and don't do it. So it, it's sort of, um, now people don't have to do that. They can just go to their local one, which, which again, it's, it's all, there's good that comes with that. But, but I, I wonder a little bit is, um, I wonder a little bit, uh, I don't know where I'm really going with this thought. But do you feel like I people wonder... aren't paying their dues by having to pick up and move and kind of suffer for mm -hmm. their education? It's almost too, too easy. Is that what it's you're certainly saying? Easier. I don't know. I don't know if that, but something like that. And, and I don't, I don't know. It, it's almost like, um, in a way it was almost like harder. It's like you had to, it's almost like you had to want it more back then and you had to search. It was harder to find stuff too. So it was like the people that did find it were the ones that sort of searched more and sort of maybe wanted it more. Um, whereas now it's like, it's so much easier to discover this this world and and all the options that exist within it and and also i think that's a that's for the, in the bigger picture i think that's better but yeah. sometimes i wonder what are this what are if any some of the little things that may have been lost from from that and that sort of diluting and um yeah uh, i wonder yeah you but, know but, i think about there's a lot of artists that did some interesting things to get an education like um, Casey Ball, I don't know if you know his work, but he just yeah. travels from the South to Vermont and knocks on, this is this story as I understand it, knocks on Richard Schmidt's door. And, and, and I mean, that's how determined he was to get an education. And then people like yourself who are willing to go across the country, I mean, so many people had to go to Italy, all the way to Italy to, to learn how to paint back then. And, and as, and you didn't even, you haven't even mentioned the, this whole online thing. Like I have students who mentor with me online. They don't even have to leave their living room. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. Now kids are getting like really pretty incredible educations all online. And, and again, it's give and take. And I wonder what you lose. I, th I think there's nothing better than an in-person group experience for, for learning. However, if that's not an option to you, well, then online instruction is great. And, um, it, it, and especially since the pandemic started, how much more that sort of developed um, and how much, how like everyone like is offering online instruction and, um, uh, and, and making videos. And uh, um, it, it's, it's just so much easier uh, to get an education now than it used to be. And, uh, and, and it's just so much more, people doing this now than there seemed to have been in the past. And uh, that, that's, that's gotta be a good thing in the, in overall. I wonder if um, there's a certain level of grit that used to be required because you'd have to leave your home. You'd have to go find an education somewhere and it was, you'd have to compete to get in. 
And so that same grit that got you into Grand Central or got you to Richard Schmidt or got you to Florence Academy or whatever it might be would carry over into a field that is really difficult to navigate. Whereas now it's like, you know, millions of people can study in their backyard or over the internet that may not have the grit required to make a living. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're really right on with that. It's, uh, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, like that silly scene and <laughs> I don't know why it's popping in my head. Um, I don't even the fight club movie where the guy wants to be in the fight club, but they make you stand outside for like three days and they tell you to leave and you're not good enough. You'll never do this. So yeah, I do think there was um, that process of having to find and then make whatever changes, sacrifices, whatever, in order to, to, to be able to move and, and go there and um, to make, to make, uh, to get yourself in a place where you can learn how to draw and paint. And uh, yeah, and uh, I think it was hard. It definitely was harder back then. And, and I think there's good, and that makes you makes you a harder person. And, and, and as you said, grittier, have more grit if you're gonna make that work. And, and it, it, my first year was, it was hard. It sucked, you know, and I was, I was super happy because I was there and I was doing what I wanted. And I was happy to, to sort of, make the sacrifices I had to, but it was hard because I, I would go home every weekend to, to have to work on the weekends. And um, uh, even the first, I remember the first week or two, I was on my friend's couch because I didn't have an apartment yet. And uh, I was young enough where I was able to do all that. And it was fine. It was, it was more probably of an adventure than anything, but, um, but, uh, but it was, it was, it was hard. And, uh, but again, it was, it was, I was, I was happy to, 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 to do the work and to make the sacrifices because I knew that that's what I wanted. So it was okay that I didn't have, um, I didn't, I wasn't able to uh, compare myself to my normal friends at that age who were, were, were you know, out of college, they were getting real jobs. So they were able to start to like, they could buy like a, a car and, and go out and um, go places and do things and I, that I wasn't able to do. and. Um, um, which, which, which again, it was happy to make that, that those uh, sacrifices. Um, so, how and, did uh, you transition from Water, Water Street. Street Atelier to real life to painting and being a professional painter? Um, I, I studied. Um, so, when I um, was at Water Street, it, um, I was in there in a transitional sort of time. I, the first two years were at Water Street, and then. Jacob had uh, also, my first year was the first year that Grand Central uh, Academy, back then it was Grand Central Academy got launched. Um, so there was the two schools going parallel side by side. Um, and then I think after my second year, Jacob consolidated the two schools. Um, so he sent everyone at Water Street over to Grand Central Academy. And, and uh, um, so we just became part of that group. And then I stayed there for another three years. So I ended up, st I studied for five years. Um, and because my fourth year, I was like, I don't know how to do this yet. I need, I need more time. And Jacob was very cool about that. And, um, and I think um, my fifth year was when I started to really, that was when it's like, okay, I bought myself another year. 
let me keep trying to get better at drawing and painting, but also I need to start to think a little more about what's what's next. Um, uh, so at that time, Jacob had brought over um, Tony Sir and I to sort of, to, to sort of uh, introduce a still life component to the curriculum there. And I had no interest really in still life. Um, and Jacob kind of, uh, he kind of just made us take the class. Um, so I didn't really want to do it, but, uh, but I did. But also it was like, you know, it's, uh, I can see myself, I'm going to be out on my own soon. And uh, even though I love the figure and that's what I want to do, it's like, I'm certainly not going to be able to afford to have a model in my studio every day. So let me see what this still life thing is about. And maybe that's, I can do that in addition to this. Um, so I, I sort of took class with Tony and, and I really, I really liked it. He, I thought he was a great teacher and I loved um I just I was just happy that he he became sort of part of the, the that school there and offered that and um and and then I, I just kept once I started doing still lives with him I just kept doing them and um once I finished Grand Central later that that year um I had my own little uh, mini studio um in 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 my apartment in Forest Hills New York um which is in Queens um, I had a little super tiny little second bedroom that, that I turned into a studio and I just started making little still lifes in there. Um, and also I was working the three days a week at um, uh, Wally Finlay Galleries, which is a gallery in New York City. I was working as an art handler there part time because I needed to make money. I wasn't selling any paintings, of course, at that point. Um, and I, uh, I wasn't really teaching much either. Jacob did give me a Saturday teaching cast, cast drawing, which was great. I was really thrilled to be able to um, uh, to join the, the, the teaching, um, uh, to become one of the, the teachers and instructors there. Because um, that was, uh, I was able to stay connected to the school, which I really wanted, and to start the teaching, which I wanted, and um, to stay part of the, that world. I didn't want to, I didn't want to cut the cord and just be completely isolated and on my own. Um, so I was uh, teaching on Saturdays and then working three days a week at a gallery as an art handler, which I didn't like doing, but was what I had to do. And um, and then I would paint still lifes in my studio with the time I had left. And also I would do like a, I would have a figure come like once I could, the most I could swing was a model once a week. And I stayed, I, I did that for a while, but then, doing the figure once a week isn't i wasn't i wasn't doing any it's it's like i feel like you need to be all in or or kind of not mm -hmm. at, all, at all and i was just making not good figure stuff um and my still life stuff was getting better and i eventually was just like uh forget the figure for now maybe i'll come back to it but let me let me sort of go all in on the still life thing um and then I, uh, I think it was through, I somehow got into um, a couple of like little galleries. There was a gallery uh, in um, Cape Cod that was, she, she uh, had taken on some GCA artists. So that was kind of, I, I had that connection and I was able to um, 
start sending her some stuff and I would get a couple sales there. And then I, there was another gallery in New York, Ray's Gallery, that eventually took me on. And that was sort of my big, my bigger sort of first sort of real kind of um, uh, um, experience in the gallery world and, and actually starting to sell paintings. And, and that was really kind of cool and exciting. I felt like I was like a, a becoming like an actual it made me feel like a professional artist to, to be able to actually sell galleries and sorry, sell paintings in, in a New York gallery. And, um, and then, uh, I was, I was continuing with my, my, just my part-time job and painting still lifes and teaching. And, um, in a few years, I was able to start to sort of back away from the, um, from the part-time job at the gallery. I was able to go from three days to, to two days. And then um, I don't know if I went to one day at, at some point or just after that, but but I was a bit eventually able to sort of um, kind of just go full-time into uh, um, uh, just painting and then also teaching. I was beginning to get more teaching too. So that was all able to, the, getting more sales and getting more teaching was able to sort of um, it, it gave me the opportunity to to leave the the, the gallery job, which which I was really excited. About. I, I even though I was grateful to have the job and and the people, uh, my employers treated me well. It was I didn't want to do that. I wanted to paint and I wanted to teach. Mostly, I just wanted to paint. Hmm. Okay. So what about now? Are you still teaching now? I am, but very little compared to what I used to. Uh, a lot of that is from the pan. Once the pandemic started, I um, GCA didn't have any uh, in-person classes anymore. And I tried doing a Zoom thing and I was like, ah, I, this is just better. It's definitely Zoom teaching is definitely better than nothing. But I didn't uh, just not being a tech person. And also that just I, I, I found it very frustrating to try to um, critique paintings, photographs of paintings, and photographs of setups. And it was just so not what I was used to and not what I liked. And um, so I kind of didn't do much Zoom teaching. Um, I, I didn't do it. I just stopped teaching kind of at, at Grand Central almost altogether. And um, I did have a couple um, online students that, uh, that were um, people that I had that had taken my in-person classes at GCA and stuff before all the pandemic stuff. So I had a couple online students that I would meet with once a week online. And uh, again, it wasn't, I, I was happy to have it. Cause again, it, even though that I, I so much prefer the, an in-person experience. Um, again, it's better than online is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember I, uh, I did go back to once Grand Central, things started to ease, and this was only like halfway into the pandemic, but like things would sort of open, and they'd think things are okay, and then they open up again, and then, um, so the GCA opened up again, so I went back and taught a class, and then like there was, I got, it was a direct contact to someone that day, so then I had to like uh, quarantine myself and pull my kids out of school for a week, and I was like, you know, oh, I just I can't do it, it's not worth it. Um, it's unfortunately not worth it. Even though I love GCA, I, I, I can't, again, just the, the, the money you make teaching one day is not, just didn't justify me having to take my kids out of school for a week and, and, and then me not be able to sort of go or do anything, go anywhere, or do anything for a week. 
or two weeks really it was at that time. Um, yeah, it was a crazy time. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so I, uh, was just like, uh, I'll be back when this is over. And then I moved the pandemic. Um, my wife and I were able to purchase a home, but it was further away from the city, kind of deeper into New Jersey. And, and it was too far for me to be able to commute in a regular way to the city anymore to do like a, a weekend class or an evening class or day class. And so I just, unfortunately, well, I'm not able to teach there regularly anymore. So I'll, I'll do my like week long workshop once a year there now. Um, but I, I just can't, my proximity, I can't go in more than that. Um, mm. but, you know, with traffic, it'll be two hours each way, which is not Right, doable. yeah. So it's basically just full-time painting at this point then? Yeah, pretty Yeah, pretty much. And I have, um, I have three online students that I work with, uh, but, and, and I, and I'll, now I'm starting to like host workshops in my studio. So I had, I've only had one so far, but I had one last summer that went, that went well, and I'm going to have another one. Um, my second one is um, in a couple, actually in the middle of April. And then I'll have another one in, in, in uh, I think, the summertime. So I'll, I'll have my sort of few online students, and then I'll just have a couple workshops here and there. Um, but, but mostly I'm, I'm lucky that I'm able just to spend most of my time now just making paintings. So when you talked earlier about how much you love figurative work, and then you said that this new teacher came in and Jacob forced you to take the still life class. And now you're now really other than animals and your still life painting, you are 100% still life. It seems like at this point. So have you just absolutely grown to love this subject matter or is it just a matter of convenience or both? Uh, but both, but, um, it was, um, even though I initially never had much interest in it, I think a lot of that was due to the fact that I just didn't know anything about it. Um, so once I was introduced to it, uh, you start to sort of discover this whole new world. And, um, and, and I started to find things that I really liked and was really excited about. And, uh, particularly the 17th century still light painters and Peter Clays and, and those guys, I remembered Jacob had a, a, a Peter, a Peter Clays book in his studio. And I was like, uh, Oh wait, no, he didn't have a Peter Clay's book. He had a, the, the Cash and Still Life book, which had a lot of uh, Dutch stuff like Peter Clay's. And I was like, I was always looking at that book in the studio. And um, that really just got me uh, excited about Still Life and, and to want to sort of dive deeper into that world and to learn more and to try to sort of begin to try to uh, emulate um, them and to try to follow uh, the, 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 in the sort of the tradition that they sort of helped create and participated in. Um, hmm. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, let's go ahead and look at your work at this point. I mean, tradition is a great way to describe it. It's completely timeless. I mean, you, it could have been painted 500 years ago or yesterday, which is one of the things I absolutely love about your work. Um, so another thing that I wanted to, I just want to focus on a couple things. So I emailed you some time ago or messaged you on Instagram and I'm dying to know if you have the painting. It's, uh, it's of blood oranges. Do you remember when I messaged you about that one? Yes, I do. Oh yeah. my gosh. You have a gift for citrus. 
I'm just saying the way you make it that the the meat of the fruit just like so translucent looking is just gorgeous. Is that one in here? Thanks. Oh my gosh, yeah, there it is. That's a detail of it, right? Yes. I think there's other photos there. Yeah. Other photos in this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I so wish I had money. <laughs> this painting is just absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. So are you drawn to citrus? I notice you painted a lot. Are you do you kind of love yes, that I, yeah, transparency? I, 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 yeah, I, I like uh, citrus a lot. What, what got me excited about it was uh, not like I've always had this interest in like lemons and stuff. It's more of um, the way the Dutch painters painted lemons uh, in mm -hmm. particular. I just thought it was so cool. And they had this um, little tech, they had their own little sort of sort of technique technique to sort of do it, which was not how, which was what's cool about it is like they had, um, the Dutch painters, and I'm sure other too, um, they had like little like sort of recipes for for painting various sorts of things. So they had sort of a, a little uh, how-to on how to do grapes, or and, there, and then there's a certain method for doing uh, lemons. And um, uh, the lemon treatment in particular, I always just found super cool, especially when you see them in person, because they're like, not only are they painting a they're also kind of literally kind of sculpting in, in low relief the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, that peel-like surface because they would um, impasto the, the, the yellows in, in such a way that it sort of um, mimicked the, the, uh, the material, the, you know, the physical material in the surface of, of a real um, lemon. And... I, I've read about a little bit about how they would do that. Supposedly, um, they would take um, like lead tin yellow and mix egg whites into it, which would sort of really puff it up and get it more like, I guess, gooey and like kind of liquidy, kind of like if you were to add stand oil to it. And I think too, they also definitely added stand oil to to that. To the stand oil gives it that sort of self-leveling kind of liquidy quality that just is, is is kind of perfect for making those little sort of bumps, those little hills. Mm -hmm. um, is that like, what you, you use when you're like, say you're it, painting this orange? Yes, I use stand. I don't use egg whites. I'm not, I don't, it's not going to mess with that. Um, right. But I use stand oil. I, I mix um, uh, just paint with uh, um, stand oil and then something like, uh, like a, uh, you need to put in like another medium like that because the stand oil alone is too thick. So I'll add, I'll add like a, some sort of linseed oil, either oleo gel or, um, or uh, usually I, lately I've been using liquid a lot because uh, hmm. I just love how fast it makes everything dry, especially if you're impostoing. Um, so I'll mix um, uh, the, the, the paint with uh, stand oil and liquid, and then I'll get in, in whatever proportion gives me the certain consistency I'm, I'm looking for. And then I'll sort of just sort of try to, Sort of create the, the that varied sort of lump and bump pattern, um, and then I, I, it's still something I'm really kind of experimenting with, and and sort of uh, I think I'm constantly varying kind of how I do it. And I've read too that some of the old Dutch guys would, um, after they would do this initial sort of 
kind of sculpting of that surface, they would, um, after it dried, they would take like an umber and sort of rub it over there and then wipe it off to varying degrees, which would, um, it would uh, the, that, that umber, that brown would settle down into the nooks and crannies, but then be sort of wiped off of the peaks. So it would sort of further enhance that sort of, uh, um, that sort of uh, uh, illusion of, um, uh, of, of form and volume. And you're experimenting with that as well. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I don't, I, less so, um, I, I've, I've messed with, uh, less recently messing with the glazing on top of it, but I'll, I'll go, like, I don't get like all the lumps and bumps exactly the way I want to all, always in one pass. So I might, I'll sort of do an initial sort of lump and bump pass and then I'll let it dry and then I'll kind of go back into it and make uh, maybe try to sort of, I'll do like a combination of adding more lumps and bumps in addition to sort of kind of glazing to sort of round out the forms and get a more of a, a, a precise sort of modeling effect. Um, a lot of, there's give and take with painting thickly. A lot of times when you're painting thickly, it comes at the, uh, the cost of sort of precision and sort of, uh, um, uh, control in a way so sometimes you can um you can kind of get the best of you can get the, the the energy and spontaneity that impasto gives you with this sort of precision and specificity that a sort of a thinner more careful sort of painting process gives you by just doing that in two stages so you could do an initial stage where like i'm trying lumping and bumping it on there and and it'll come at the cost of sort of uh, maybe like some of the, the specific sort of roundness or modeling or something like that. But I just let it dry and then you can go back on and sort of curve some parts more if you need to, or add more sort of texture where needed and add high, usually add highlights in that second sort of one. Um, but it, it, it's definitely something I'm, I'm just continually trying to, it's not like I feel like I've arrived at some sort of fully sort of repeatable method. It's still something I'm trying to calibrate and, and tweak and adjust and, and sort of continue to kind of try to get better at. So I noticed a couple times when you were imitating making a brushstroke, you, you did this kind of a thing. So what that suggests to me is you're using some pretty small brushes, maybe even some short handled brushes when doing this. Uh, uh, I've messed with all different sorts of sizes. Um, I, I, I only use rounds. Um, but of, of course the full range of sizes. Um, so I've used tiny, it's certainly on the smaller end of the spectrum, definitely. Um, but I've found that if you have um, a, a, a brush, it can be a bigger brush, but if it's in good condition, and you have a nice point on there, you can, you can do some of that mm -hmm. fine little uh, bumps and lumps and modeling with it. So this is like a, a an eight. Is that stable? So I, I, yes. Um, I use sixes and eights. That's kind of mostly what I have um, uh, in, for most of my stuff. I don't, I, I tend more and more, I'm not using, I'm not picking up the zeros as like in the way that I used to. Um, hmm. And you, are you mostly using sables as well? Yes. I only, I only use, I only use, I'll tell you that I use Rosemary Pure Sable Series 99. It's like a, a, it's like a, not the Kalinsky sable. I used to use those, but she raised her prices. Now they're too expensive. So I get the red sable, which is, um, to me, just, I, I don't even notice a difference to me. They're just as good and they they cost less. So. Oh, no kidding. 
Okay. Um, yeah, I, I really like the the Series ninety nine. That's 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 my that's the only brush I use. Um, but in the in the in a full range of sizes. Yeah, it's amazing how often Rosemary gets brought up on this podcast. I need to get her get her on here and interview her. She makes they make great brushes. Um, yeah. 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 All right. Let's go back to your website. Well, maybe we'll just hang out on Instagram for a minute here. You mentioned lemons. Um, man. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about actually, I'm going to go back to your studio here. I want to talk a little bit about your process because I see this back here and it looks as though you've got, you know, you, you've really drawn it in advance and probably transferred the drawing onto the canvas and then you're working one fruit at a time. Yeah, so uh, this painting here that I have in, in, in progress, I'm, I'm working on that now, is um, it, it's it's actually not the way I usually work oh. at this scale, at least. Um, I always make a drawing, I, or I almost always make a drawing um, like a separate drawing that then gets transferred onto my painting surface and then inked and toned, uh, as you can oh, see Oh, you here. ink it? With what kind of ink? Yeah. Uh, just a micron pen. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but I, I have a dip pen, too, that I've used in the past. But I, I, I tend to just use a, a micron pen. So um, a lot of people will do it with char They'll transfer it with charcoal and then just seal it with some sort of fixative. Why do you not go that route? Why the micron pen? Uh, I think it's because that's how I was taught at GCA. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> it's just habit. When I was in college, though, I did the fixative thing. The, um, I would just, yeah, you fix that. That was kind of the illustrator's sort of way. Um, uh, they would they would just make their drawings in, in pencil or charcoal and then fix them and then paint on top of that. And uh, as far as I know, that's fine. A fine. I don't think there's anything. I've heard some people wonder if it's okay to have fixative on there, but I, I don't. That's why I was I asking. I wonder the same thing. If it's not yeah, I archival, don't, I don't know if it's harmful or or if it's not as George O'Hanlon would say, best practice. Uh, I don't know. Um, hmm. And I, I I think the reason I use the method I do is just basically because that's how I was taught to do it um, at, at GCA. But and but the yes, micron I'll doesn't do bleed. Charcoal. It never bleeds through. The micron pen. Uh, it, it's not that it bleeds through, but if definitely if you're painting some passages thinner, it can show through, and you do have to take care to kind of cover up some areas. And, and there's definitely some paintings I have where you can, if you look carefully, you will see some ink lines show through. And to me, as long as it's not like distracting or taking away anything, I, I don't really care. Um, Huh. Yeah, because I'm yeah, looking at these green that. grapes and I'm like, how in the world? I, I guess you'd have to be painting pretty opaque to cover up a mic, uh, uh, dark black line. Well, it's, I don't, I try to, usually I use a brown micron pen and I try to be minimal with it. I try to just put down as little ink as possible. Oh. Like, I try to like be as minimal with it as, as I can okay. um, because it can be a, a pain in the butt to cover up. But um, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I maybe I've just gotten used to it or um, accustomed to it or whatever. But it's not that doesn't really bug me or bother me very much. Yeah. Uh, but there's definitely times where you, you might have to go, 
you you painted a passage and then uh, there's this little like especially time zone is problematic as it's shadows because i like to paint my shadows relatively thinner with a greater degree of transparency than in the light so those will be the times when you might get some of that ink line showing through and there certainly have been times where i've had to go back to something after it's dry just to get a little more coverage in, in a here or there where maybe the ink line is showing through and it's bugging me a little bit okay now that you mentioned shadows i want to i want to ask you about that so one thing i've noticed with a lot of more you know traditional painters particularly ones coming out of ateliers and i'm not saying any particular atelier i've just seen a lot that come out of ateliers they'll take this um concept of lights being opaque shadows being transparent to the extreme so where they'll have all of the lights totally opaque and then it's like a cliff at the core shadow and drops completely opaque i'm sorry completely transparent to where even the reflected lights are just wipe out um and you don't do that which i think is good right um I mean, tell me about, are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Where it's like, yeah, absolutely. completely. And um, yeah, definitely. And yeah, there's definitely a tradition for sort of varying the amount of paint you're putting on. And there's certainly a, uh, you'll notice in lots of old and new paintings that, that, that the, there'll be, that there tends to be a, there's a convention of um, painting darks thinner and lights thicker. And you'll see that idea is played with, uh, in, in, in a full spectrum, there's a full spectrum of ways you can sort of deal with that. I, I Like when I'm sort of talking about that or thinking about that, I sort of, I like to think about kind of Velasquez as, as sort of representative of one end of that sort of extreme. Um, thinking of Velasquez portrait, like um, you, they're, they're, some of the impostos, like uh, maybe a highlight on the head, on the forehead is like super thick impasto. There's so much paint there. And then you go to like his sort of like, the side of his uh, jaw, like where the beard starts, and you see like there's so little paint there, and it's like um, uh, you see this sort of the, the the almost the ground or the tooth of the canvas where you don't where he's kind of covered up all of that sort of the weave of the canvas up in the forehead and the lights because he's how much paint he's adding, and then you see just relatively so much more of that um, in, in another area and. Um, I, I, so there's a very a big with, with someone like Velasquez, and it's not it's, it's even to varying degrees within Velasquez, but there'll be lots of um, uh, there's a big difference often between the amount of paint in dark areas versus the amount of paint in light areas. And again, it's not there, there's always from uh, there's always of course exceptions to that and variations to that, but in general, I think that's true. Um, and then you think of someone like Ang, who paints uh, in a much m more, um, uh, less varied sort of way than a Velasquez. Kind of everything is a lot thinner and a lot sort of more similar, the, the paint application is a lot more similar. However, even he still varies the way he's putting paint down and there will be thicker and thinner, but it's not to the extreme that, that you see in a Velasquez. But you'll see with Ang and David, you'll see thin transparent shadows and darks and then uh, at least for for Ang and David, what what I guess they would call an impasto, which is like little baby impastos, but still the variety of application is there, and I think that's what makes one of the things that makes um, uh, um, uh, painting interesting is that um, varying varying the um, varying your application, um, but doing it in a way where you're not, and this is kind of to your I think what you were sort of suggesting. 
doing it in a way where you're um, still creating a cohesive and harmonious whole. And mm -hmm. I think times when you see that method sort of not working is when, as you said, the transition from one to the next is too extreme, abrupt, or it's not sort of like, it's not sort of flowing or, or harmonizing the way that, that it could. Right, so you right. get, it's almost like you get these two different paintings in, in one and then it's, it's jarring and weird. So yeah, like figuring out how to make those transitions in a way that um, uh, is going to make enhance the painting instead of detract is certainly something that's difficult to, to figure out and takes a lot of uh, time to, to sort of um, become sensitive to and then to sort of employ in your own work. Yeah. Would you say that some of it, though, is that you are using, except in your absolute darkest darks, that you, there is some opacity in your oh, shadows? Yeah. Uh, there, um, my, there's, um, like, I would think of it as, like, um, I'm able to get the, a certain amount of coverage because there's, like, layers there, but... Um, there isn't that much paint. There's definitely a lot less paint in the darks than there is in the lights, but there's enough paint in the darks that I, uh, like, I would never want to sacrifice the um, expression of the thing for the sake of a concept or idea. Like, I don't want to like paint a crappy grape because I am trying to sort of uh, follow some convention. I would rather paint a good grape at the, even if that means kind of abandoning some sort of uh, idea that I wanted to, regarding paint application. Um, uh, so yes, I want to keep my darks thinner, but if they're too thin, it's not going to work. So there needs to certainly needs to be a, a minimum, some sort of amount of paint there in order to, uh, some bare minimum amount of paint there in order to sort of con to create the illusion or whatever. But, but uh, I, you can think of it like in like with Photoshop, you know how you can sort of um, change the opacity of of, of something like a, mm -hmm. if you want to like put down a color, you can change the opacity. You can make it 100% opaque. You can make it like super transparent or 50%. So I think of it kind of like that. I, I, there's a greater degree of transparency in, in, in the paints in the darks than in the light. So if I took like my paint, if I took like a paint mixture that, uh, that I used in the light parts of the green grapes. And I took a mixture that I used in maybe sort of the reflected lights and the shadows on the grapes. And I put two swatches of that on uh, on a piece of white canvas. You would definitely see the uh, uh, much more of that white canvas showing through on, on, the, on the thinner dark um, mm, uh, color right. than on the, on the white color, which would be, sorry, on the, on the lighter color, which is definitely, uh, either opaque or just uh, more opaque. Right, right. Yeah, well, you said you, one of the things you said was you would never sacrifice the illusion for convention in so many words. And I think that was a great way of putting it. I, I, I love yeah, that. It's, it's easy, especially when you're starting to learn stuff, it's easy to like kind of, like kind of putting the, 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 the cart before the, the carriage before the horse or whatever. It's like, if your pursuit of, of some concept or idea is just getting in your way for just sort of getting the job done, then, then you're not 
using or employing that idea right, which which is natural. It takes you have to do it wrong before you can figure out how to do it right. So it's there's been lots of times where it's like I had this idea I want to I want to be real thin with my shadows, but I'm like putting it on. I'm like too thin. I'm like this. It's too thin. It's too. And then you have to be like, okay, well maybe I just have to paint this a little more opaquely than I wanted to. And um, but but yeah, it's it's kind of. I think too a lot. It's like we have these interpretations of how we think uh, uh, the old masters worked, or this artist works, or that artist works, and and we we try to sort of um, we'll say, oh yeah, I'm working thinner darks and transparent darks and opaque lights. But what does that that could mean a whole there's that 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 isn't like a black and white thing. That's that's a there's a spectrum of possibilities there. So a lot of it is like maybe what your idea of of transparent is um, isn't sort of really in line with 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 the, the reality of of, of 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 who was able to use that in a successful way. So um, uh, um, I don't. I feel like yeah. I'm just rambling. No, no, you're but, not. This is great, great stuff. Okay, so this is white peaches, fourteen by eleven. Um, another thing I noticed about your paintings that I've always wondered in still life with still life painters, like, like you who are just at the top of your game. Um, they always have the best surfaces. This may seem like a stupid observation, but you guys always have the best tabletops in this case, like this awesome piece of granite or stone or something you set the still life on. Um, is this something that are you just improvising or do you literally collect surfaces? Oh no! With the I'm intent, a, tent of yeah, putting no, still lights on them. Yeah, full. Of, I'm a full-on hoarder. I have uh, lots of different. Um, yeah, I think it's a, if you're going to be a still life artist, you need to have tons of stuff to choose from. Uh, so y yeah, I don't. I don't make it up. I buy. I buy that stuff. So those are actually concrete uh, paving stones that I kind of. I try not to make them look like concrete. I try to make them look like real stone. Like. Yeah, you succeeded. Um, I had no idea. Um, thanks. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, seeing those old stone tabletops and all the old Dutch paintings and then, uh, Chardin paintings, uh, it just makes me want to sort of, oh, I want a cool thing like that. And, uh, so yeah, I have, um, I got tons of, uh, different stone stuff, uh, wood, uh, lots of different wood tabletops, um, just to try to give yourself different options, uh, and, uh, you know, marble, um, I have a little piece of marble and uh yeah and always trying to just find more uh things to sort of so you just have uh, options um to create whatever environment that you might feel like creating that, that, that for that project or picture so you're i mean you're i wouldn't say hyper realist by any stretch because it's got this very painterly classical feel to it but they are quite refined and they have a incredible finish to them which which makes me wonder if they take a fair amount of time to paint so first of all maybe you can answer that question but also if they do take a fair amount of time to paint how do you work with subjects like this that are going to just get gross and mealy over time or yes. more specifically like this bass black sea black sea bass I, how do does that just sit there and stink for days at a time or 
are you just cranking this thing out or both? Um, it, it's kind of both. It, it's both. So depending on what I'm painting, you need to have a certain strategy in order to adapt to that situation. So when it comes to things that uh, perish quickly, like a fish or um, or like a, a, a cut, once you cut a peaches don't last long. And then if you cut it, it lasts even less time. So yeah, you have to um, understand before you kind of go into that, how you're going to deal with that, that, uh, that reality. So with the fish, for example, um, I had to replace it. So I bought, I went really? to the store, I bought a fish cause I was like, I want to make a fish painting. So I, I found that I brought it back. I create, I, Played around in my studio for a day or two, trying to find some composition. Once I thought I found something interesting, um, I made a study. And I made a, once I made the study, and I, I sort of, I guess, got to a point where I felt okay with what what, what I had and felt ready to, to move on to the real picture. I had to go buy a new uh, fish because you only. And also, as you accumulate experience doing these things, you you learn about what to expect from any given sort of thing. So I learned from doing this fish that I I, I think I had done one before. So it's like you have uh, two days, basically three, maybe if you add to um, with a with a fish, and it's not even the the smell starts but it's not the smell that that i could deal with a, a bad smell if i had to it's it's more the the fish just starts to dry out and the and the scales start to sort of kind of flake off and fall off so it, it visually just starts to change in appearance to a in a really noticeable sort of way so um for that reason and also the the smell is i just knew i would have to replace it um so I just replaced it and got a new one. And I do the same thing with fruit as needed. Um, uh, uh, with um, like I, uh, I had to do. I'll show you. I'll bring it over. Um, I had to do this. I often do a peeled sort of. Oh, stuff. funny! Because um, I just brought, I just pulled one up. Because I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you when you do a a, a thing like this this thing will shrivel up in a day. So you have to do this in a day. You have one day to do this. And I've done it too, where I've like, I've gotten where I could with it and it wasn't done. So I had to then peel new ones. And then you kind of can, from a new peel, which will never be the same as the original, but you can, you can try to sort of hone in on the sort of more universal kind of characteristics of the peel and trying to sort of kind of Frankenstein uh, multiple the reference material together to sort of make your own sort of version of that. So I've done it like that, but I find it a lot easier if, if I can get it done in one shot just to do it that way. And that's that's how I handled um, this peel. Um, and hmm. it it literally, it actually funny, it, it wasn't attached to the um, to the orange at all. Um, there Tilt was, it downward a little bit. Tilt it down. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, there we go. No, um, a little more to the top down. Yeah. Yeah, there no less glare. There you go. That looks um, good. So when I was setting up the composition, um, I had cut the the orange that you see peeled there, and I had a certain peel arrangement from there. But that quickly shriveled up. So once I went to start making this painting, I had to get. I left the orange that I had peeled there, um, but I had to get a new um, 
uh, peel here. So I, uh, I think I, I think this was the, actually, yeah, the peel, this was the first thing I painted in this because it was the thing that I needed to paint it first because it was going to shrivel. So I, in the morning, I, um, I cut from a separate orange. It wasn't from this one. I cut a new peel, kind of put it behind it so it looked like it was attached. So I'm like faking the attachment there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just quickly drew it with, I had to just draw it with my brush right on the canvas um, instead of my normal method of just tra transfer drawing. Um, and then I just had to a la prima in, in one day. Um, Whereas I did the other things in more like two layers or. Uh, so how do you mix years. them when you're doing some things a la prima because you have to, and you're doing some things in layers, they tend to have a different quality, don't they? They or can, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm more and more, I'm finding I'm able to kind of more or less achieve the same results, no matter if I do it in uh, two to three layers or, or just one. And that's kind of um, what, that's kind of what I'm doing here. I, I was kind of, um, not just for that, uh, there's two reasons I'm, or a couple of reasons why I'm doing this the way I am uh, this time. It's not my normal method. I usually do some sort of underpainting, whether it's a monochrome or a color underpainting. This one, I, I just decided to go straight to finish. P partially it was because this setup has been in my studio for a while now, and it's like, if I can, Oh, Man, cool. I'm glad you did it's, that. Oh, and there's a little rotten. study there. Yeah, I first made a study. Um, and the, one of the reasons I do studies is because it gives me insight into to whether or not I'm going to like it as a final thing. And after doing this study, I, I kind of, I was reasonably happy with it, but I didn't like this area. I felt it felt kind of empty. So I was like, oh, I need to put something there. So I eventually had the idea to put an orange there, as you can see. Yeah. Um, but you didn't do another and, study. You were okay with your instincts at that point. Yeah. I, I you know, it, I should have made another study, but it was like, I, um, the clock was really ticking, um, mm. with that fruit. Cause it was, it was just starting to, it was beginning to go. And so I was like, you know, I just, there's no, I just got to go. I just got to start painting it. Yeah, especially so I, bananas, um, right? <laughs> they don't last. Well, the very bananas long. I replaced. Oh, okay. The bananas in the study are not the bananas that I have there now. Oh, okay. Um, and the grapes got replaced too. Um, and then everything else is still the original. But so you you learn from experience of of what will last, what won't, and then how to sort of plan for that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, th this one, I um, for for reasons of just practicality, um, uh, you know, regarding that the stuff was starting to kind of rot pretty quickly. Um, uh, but also, I was like, I've been making a lot more studies recently, and there's a certain quality that they seem to have that isn't in my finished bigger paintings that I kind of want to have, and which which is. What you often hear people say about studies that they'll have more of a spontaneity, a looseness, a painterliness, and a and an energy, and and um, a um, uh, a candidness that that is sometimes harder to get when you're sort of uh, working in a sort of on a at a larger scale and then to a higher finish. So I've wanted to, and and I think one of the reasons that studies have that is because. A lot of times we make them in a sort of a la prima way with like a bigger brush. So it's like we never 
get sort of as sort of stuck into detail and polish. Um, right. Uh, so uh, that's a sort of quality I want to my my main work to have. I, I want to get that more of that feeling into my painting. So. Well, so it's like, oh, okay, well, that's another reason. Maybe I can just go straight to sort of almost more painting this and more of an alla prima style. And I don't know. I don't know that it does have the, the quality that my studies have because I feel like I just I can't help myself from going into sort of polish mode. Um, hmm. And uh, But I, I don't know. It's, it's all, everything's a constant sort of recalibrating and trying to sort of just make adjustments to sort of try to get closer to, to, to what you're trying to sort of achieve or, or, or a feeling you're trying to get or effect you're trying to, to sort of do. And uh, so I don't know. It's, um, hmm. but I, I do, I, I kind of do like, I, I'm, I'm going to keep, I think I'm going to keep trying to sort of do more of this sort of right at it sort of uh, Kind of thing and see where it kind of how it goes for a while because I, I kind of like it because it's almost like I don't I think if I showed this painting to most people they wouldn't be able to tell if it was done with uh, if I did it in the way I usually do it or if I doing it in this one if, if it's like two or three layers or if it's just one layer because it kind of, to me it kind of looks this like the same as my other paintings so hmm. why not save myself some time and energy um, and and go right at it and it's of course not without Everything's give and take. Whatever method you choose, there's 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 benefits and, and drawbacks to it. The the big difficulty of going right at it is is uh, in this manner is a lack of context. Um, uh, it's it's it can be harder to make choices regarding color um, when you don't have a lot of things to compare. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. First getting started. Yeah. Right. Like the first thing I or oh, even sorry, value. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but I, I don't know. There's ways to deal with that difficulty uh, um, by just just have to. Even if you don't have a lot of context, all you need is kind of to, 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 to begin with a choice, and then to make everything agree to that choice. Um, uh, or another way to think about it is like this is a term Anthony Wachulis uses, which I like. It makes sense to me. Is um, he calls them anchors, and he will, um, because he works in a in a sort of all, even though he does layers, his first layer is is very like most people would say, oh, that's a finished painting. Uh, so he will work on a white canvas with zero context starting out, and also very minimal drawing. So he doesn't have a lot of things to compare to one another at the beginning, and that makes decision making difficult because our perceptions are influenced by context. So, the but he's way a photorealist, isn't he? Uh, yeah, I guess you would call him that. Yeah, he. I know he uses photography uh, for reference and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, like he's really, really sharp. Like really, really. Oh yeah, like he pushes the the doing the, dollar the, bills the, the and realism stuff to like a, to, to yeah. His real level of realism is 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 crazy. And when yeah. you see his paintings in person, it's like the 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 the, the, the meticulous detail is, is 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 super impressive. Um, and I don't really know how he how he does it, but. He um, he talks a lot about what he calls them anchors, which is it's a means of orienting yourself regarding values. So he will early on try to sort of start an area that has like a, a darkest dark 
in the picture and like a, like something that's black and something that's white because then you can use those two extremes to sort of uh, negotiate all those uh, shades of gray in between those two. So if you can say, oh, I know this part has to be white or this part has to be black or this part has to be close to white or close to black, you can use those sort of known things to sort of help figure out the, the unknown things or all those sort of trickier in-betweens. So that's how something that's very kind of um, uh, on my mind when I have to sort of work in, in this way where it's more straight to finish without a lot of context because it's hard to sort of just harder to make choices. So, um, yeah. but it, again, if if you sort of just know how to uh, think about it, you can manage the the task. And then, of yeah. course, as you accumulate more context, you gain sort of further insight to the previous choices you've made, and then you'll find opportunities. Oh, I can go back and fix this and adjust this and that, um, which I'm sure I'll do after I get everything covered. But I'm just going to keep moving forward getting everything covered. And then once everything's covered, I'll probably like oil out the whole thing. And then I'll, that'll be the first time I'm able to see everything uh, in context in relation to one another. And then that'll inevitably be, that'll inevitably sort of um, uh, tell me like, oh, this part is, is, is needs adjustment or that part's too bright or that part's too dark hmm. uh, and so on and so on. You know what I found? Cause I spent a lot of time doing multi-figure work from life and it's what I found is working from life is a little bit, well, it's a lot different for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons it's different than photography is that the anchor points aren't so obvious because your canvas might be lit differently than your subject. For example, yeah. if, I, if I'm doing a figure one day that is supposed to be fairly brightly lit, and then the next day I'm doing one that's more dimly lit, but they're not there at the same time, yeah. my eyes are going that's to good. adjust to the dimly lit one, but my canvas is the same. So what I've, what I've found was putting like, uh, having like an index card somewhere in my peripheral that's always lit pure, I mean, absolutely brightly lit as a, as a reference point. So that if my, you know, if I've got a figure sitting on the model stand, I can compare the figure to the index card uh, that's directly under that's, the skylight. Yeah. That, that you have a constant. Yeah. A that's constant. Good. Right. Right. That's a good idea. I, I never heard that. Um, I mean, it's a little different yeah, situation because yeah, it's harder for you. Yeah, well, it was. I mean, you because uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's a little different than a still life because everything is at least there. But I, I wondered if that was something you might have tried. Not that you need to try this because you're already succeeding. But if you'd ever experimented with something like that, because I saw that little white piece of tape on your easel, and I thought, I wonder if that's some sort of a guide for your whitest white. If you had like a piece of tape over in the still life that was pure white or something, but it doesn't sound like yeah, it. Yeah, no. Um, that, that, that piece of tape there is that, that's there for when I take a photograph of it because it helps the it, oh, helps, okay. you know, it helps the camera um, uh, uh, get the uh, exposure. Oh, um, okay. I'm glad I asked about um, that. But you know, I feel I feel like um, just from uh, just from all the years of practice uh, and stuff that I become kind of able to, I think, manage value um, in a reasonable way without having to sort of um, have a, like something like a, like a, like a white card up. But, um, right, right. But you know what, if I was doing something like you are, where I don't have all the things there at the same time that I can see, so I can sort of see everything in relation to another, I think I would need to do something like that. 
or I'd have to have some sort of study um, where I sort of maybe had the um, I, I had worked out those value relationships of, of, of you know I want the figure in the background to be darker and the figure in the foreground to be brighter and and, um, and of course if, if um, there was, uh, you, I, I think I would have to either have some constant like you or I would in addition to having a, a study where I worked out those relationships beforehand that would then serve as a guide for the for the final. Yeah, which but, is also what I did. Yeah, you hit it right on the head. I had to do the same yeah, thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think when I, it's so much easier for me to manage value relationships when, when everything's there. And, and uh, so it, it's, I, I, I think it's, but it's, it's so much from practice of, of, um, of, of just learning how to sort of translate the, 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 the value range from the real world into the, the, that squeezed more narrowly bracketed um, uh, value range that paint offers. Right. As you know, and, and anyone who does what we do knows that, you know, the black paint isn't going to be as dark as like a super dark shadow and the white paint isn't going to be as bright as this, the highlight on, on, on the metal of the glass or the, or the, the forehead or whatever. So uh, we don't have the, the value range with paint that exists in nature. So all those relationships have to be compressed and translated. Um, which was such an awkward thing to, to learn. But, uh, you know, after years and years of, of doing it every day, you, you become better at it. And then I think at a certain point, you can just sort of just, just do it. I also have ways that I, um, uh, I have a way of mixing color that helps me kind of, it automatically brackets myself in a, in a pretty reasonable way so that I can, um, even though I have to be mindful of, of how I'm managing my value ranges um, and I have to make sure I'm sort of bracketing the, the banana appropriately in relation to the pineapple and so on and so on, the way I mix my colors usually is, is this sort of mixing and matching sort of way. I'll take my palette knife and I'll hold it up to various areas of the subject and I'll try to sort of essentially mix and match the, the, the spectrum or range of colors that um, exist on the on whatever subject that I'm painting, and um, that um, it kind of uh, it's like if I try to mix and match the lightest light on the pair, and I mix and match the the darkest shadow on the pair, and then uh, however many steps in between that I feel like I need, it sort of sets you up already with your sort of appropriate value range for, yeah. for that object. Um, However, it's not as simple as that because, as I said a second ago, um, paint doesn't have the value range that nature does. So there is ultimately some sort of a degree of compression and, and sort of um, it's not a one-to-one. -one. So even though I'm doing – it's kind of weird and seems seemingly contradictory. I do this sort of one-to-one -one matching, and then I'll set up a, a sort of a, a color string on my palette that I more or less know that I have to play within that range. I know that during the painting process, I have to deviate to varying degrees from those literal one-to-ones in order to to compensate for the the, the compression that, that that has to happen. Um, but so, again, that's another thing that just from lots of time and lots of practice, I just you just become uh, better, more adept at managing. Um, right. But I'm constantly like looking at. I'm constantly evaluating my value range and, and making sure that I'm not, and you can do that on your palette too. So even if I don't have a lot of context on my, on my canvas yet, I can use my palette. I'll be like, okay, 
I think this is a reasonable shadow color for the pair. Um, and I know it's like pretty dark, but I know it can't be as dark as the shadow on that purple grape. Um, so I can look on my palette to make sure I'm not getting like approaching too close to black or something like that. So there's, right. there's, there's different ways you can manage, manage your values and stay mindful of, 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 of uh, how to sort of bracket, uh, bracket yourself appropriately. Um, Hmm. So you mentioned color strings. Do you mix a color string for every color? I mean, or is it for every object? Yeah, yeah. For every object, do. but do you so like the the pair there is red or pinkish and yellow? Are you mixing mm -hmm. multiple color strings for the various colors within a particular object as well? Yes. So when I, you, um, go ahead. Oh, so when you get up in the morning, I mean, are you spending a couple hours just mixing color strings or how long does that take you? No. Um, so I'll just mix the strings, uh, that I'm going to use that day. So if I'm going to oh, right. paint the, um, the pairs, like I painted those two pairs in, uh, that was a, a, a day. So, um, and they it actually each pair It's probably hard to tell in the video, but the the yellows and the pears are they're, they're different. One is um one is definitely a little bit more of a greenish yellow, and the other goes a little more towards an orange yellow. Yeah, Even though I can the see it. Is, yeah, the difference is very subtle. Um, but but that that was two different strings. Um, and then as you as you noted, the other pair has a different local color, and it goes more towards those those sort of uh, orangey pinks. So that was its own color string. However, because there was um. Uh, the amount of sort of like real estate or or really it's not the amount of real estate it's the amount of tonal range within the pinks it's a it's much smaller than in the yellows um so uh i didn't need to have as many steps in that string for that like i the, for the for the, the the pink on the side there i only had three colors mixed up for that whereas for this the yellow string i used for the pair that was much more like uh probably like seven or eight, maybe even nine steps. Um, Can you briefly and, just explain what a color string is for those who don't know? Yes, a color string is just a, 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 a range of colors that you can pre-mix that are representative of the thing that you're going to paint that day. So for example, um, when I was gonna paint this pair, I, with my palette knife, would uh, I would look at the shadow color or any target color within the pair, and I said, okay, I'm going to try to mix that color. So I would, uh, just through trial and error on my palette, mix it, take a guess at mm -hmm. what, what I think it needs to be, what, what sort of combinations of colors will yield that target color, and then I'll hold it up. I'll hold it up to the real pair. If, like, so let's, if that was the real pair, I would hold it up to the area that I'm trying to mix to, and if it's didn't match, I would go back to my palette and make whatever necessary adjustments I thought I had to, and then retest it. And if it matched, great. And then if it matched, then I would move on to, let me try to mix up that half tone and try to fix that on my half tone and, uh, on my palette. And then once I got that, then I'll move out another step. And I just slowly move across the form from the darkest dark to the lightest light. Uh, not necessarily in that order. Sometimes I go, it doesn't matter what order I do it in, as right. long as I get all the colors I need. Um, uh, then I have uh, that sort of series of little steps that are representative of the 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 the, the spectrum, and then uh, it just makes painting it so much easier because I I basically have everything I need to to to, to paint before I've started to paint, um, hmm. and then it makes 
modeling a lot, it frees me up. It kind of subdivides the processes that we that we have to sort of uh, do in order to paint. So um, hmm. I like to sort of break it down into multiple stages so I don't have to do it all at the same time. I don't want to have to like paint form and mix color at the same time because it's 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 just I have to do two operations simultaneously, or I find it a lot easier to do one operation and then uh, and then I'm freeing up. To, once I'm finished that operation, I can start the second operation. And um, I should uh, take that advice because I never well, mix you know, color strings, not... and and I'm always like, as I'm painting, I'm like, I'm so tired of mixing this color every time I put my brush down. <laughs> well, to to your you know, every, everything's give and take. There, there's there's good and bad about doing that. The, 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 I think the nice thing about it is that you get, usually you're not going to run out of what you need and have to then stop painting to remix it. Right. Um, but I think some of the risks of it are, um, you pre-mixing tends to kind of sometimes get uh, colors that are almost too monochromatic and you might miss out on some color shifts and some... Uh, uh, that exists within the thing. So, yeah, but you're I, pushing I it though. To, you're tinting. That, you're tinting as you go, right? The hue. Yeah, yeah. It my my color string will um, my my color string is uh, varies in hue value. The, the hue is essentially the same, but it will vary in 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 uh, chroma and and value to represent the the light effect on the object. Right. So, um, yes, I'm I'm creating a. Um, a color string that represents the light effect. So it will be, um, uh, my my lightest light will be also the most chromatic color. Um, if it's, usually that's the case. Um, it's not always the case, but usually the, the lightest moment is also the most chromatic moment, uh, assuming the, the hue is constant. And then as the uh, surface turns away from the light and gets darker, you're gonna be dropping value and chroma. So that hue, that the, the, the color that I mix and the lightest light will get darker and basically grayer as it as, as it approaches the the shadow. Um, right, but I mean in real time. So, like if let's say you're painting a pair, you know, in nature, pairs are not plastic, right? They're not. They they don't have a monochromatic mm -hmm. surface. So even though technically you mix the form, you you looked at the general hue, chroma, and value changes as it goes over the form when you premix the string. Are you still kind of dipping into your colors a little bit off in the periphery just to subtly tint in real time? Yes, and I try to be really vigilant about that and try to be really willing to do that because if I don't, I, I usually will end up with something that feels too monochromatic and, and, and too sort okay. of manufactured instead of naturalistic. So that's one of the, um, that's something that I feel like you have to be willing to do when you mix color strings, because your color string probably will not be representative of the full range of, of little subtleties and variations that exist within that thing. So right. it gives you the main idea, but then you have to sort of uh, be willing to tweak and adjust on, as you said, in, in real time. And I do, I will try to, in my color string, I do try to like say, oh, there's moments that are the same value, but there's like either subtle hue and or chroma shift. So I do try to represent that in my color string. So sometimes my color string will have like little sort of side, like sort of little shoots off in little directions here and there to represent, to try to represent that uh, variety in nature. Mm -hmm. but then, uh, but in, and then in addition to that, I'm also having to go to 
sort of mix with the brush uh, as I'm painting to hopefully sort of say, oh, this part goes a little more this direction that I don't have pre-mixed. Yeah. So I, I, I felt like I've gotten better at managing that. Um, and also, um, to, to your to asking about the time, it, it used to, uh, when I first started doing it, it definitely took a lot of time because the amount of trial and error required to mix and match, it was just like, it, it, I was just so bad at mixing a color. And you might think your color is pretty accurate until you actually hold it up to the corresponding spot on your subject. And then you realize what you thought was pretty accurate on your palette is not even close. So then it takes a lot of time. It, it would used to maybe take me um, uh, easily. Uh, sometimes I would spend 40 minutes just pre-mixing. Um, but now I, I can pre-mix really fast. And um, it still is, there still is an initial time investment. But for me, it's it's well worth it um, because it makes the painting process go faster. And mm. um, and uh, it, it's also what I like about doing the mixing and matching to my subject. It's it's really the only thing. It's the way you can kind of connect the three different worlds that we have to deal with. And what I mean by three different worlds is the um, the subject, the real subject that we're painting that's sitting in front of us. So like uh, the figure in your case or the still life set up in my case. There's a, there's a, a a real sort of there's real fruit in a bowl in front of me and that's that's one of the worlds the other world is my painting the, the, my canvas that's its own world and then the third world is my my palette so we have to find a way to synthesize and connect those three worlds and the way like uh, point is is the way i perceive the same color in those three worlds will be different to varying degrees depending on where i'm at in the process so I could take, I can mix a color that I think is the right color on my palette, but part of what is influencing my choices there is the how I perceive that color in that brown little world of my palette. Mm -hmm. And this this brown world is extremely different than this brown world or this partially colored world, which is very different than that uh, uh, the real world that I'm trying to rep represent. Right. So how do I know? which to trust do i trust the way that color looks on my palette do i trust the way it looks when i put it on here uh do i it's it's and it's weird and it's like i don't there's been before i started doing this i wouldn't know i just felt a lot more unsure about color hmm. but the moment i started mixing and then holding up it either the color either matches the thing or it doesn't match and once you sort of figure out how to make whatever adjustments to really match, you, you get you get better at it and you sort of build a memory too. Um, especially me, I paint a lot of the same things over and over again. So maybe it used to take me uh, X amount of time to mix up the, the, the colors for that lemon, but now because I paint so many lemons and I've just done this trial and error process so much, I can, I can hit those target colors way faster than I used to. Um, the point is the, the knife is the thing that connects the world because I'll hold the knife. The color I mix is determined by whether or not it matches the target color in, in the real world. And then um, I'll make whatever adjustments I have to my palette. And it might look wrong on my palette, but I know that if it matched, then I have to trust it. And then if I'm and if it seems wrong on my palette, but it matches in real life, well, then I have to account my perception of it feeling wrong on the palette to just to uh, the, the the fact that that context is different than in, in the real world. 
And then when I go put that same color on my uh, on my, uh, my imprimature, or if it's a monochrome underpainter, it's going to look different. I'm going to perceive that same color different there because it's that environment's different. So it's like. So you just I trust it at that point? You just say, well, I know, I know it's right, so it's, trust it. Right. And I know that if it feels wrong, it's either that I mixed it wrong, so sometimes I'll have to double check my mixture against real life, but mostly if it feels wrong, it's just due to the context and the, the way I'm perceiving that color in its context. And if it feels wrong now, I, I, I chances are, um, if I was diligent about mixing it, then it's just because there isn't enough uh, uh, pieces that have fallen into place for me to sort of experience the color here the way I experience the color in real life. So putting down those first marks is always the most awkward and uncomfortable. And uh, a lot of times, uh, uh, you if you didn't trust your mixtures, you put it down and it looks wrong in that world, and then you start to change your colors to make it look right in that moment. And then you start to paint on other things, you start to accumulate more context, more colors come into place. And then what felt right, and then you look back at that initial passage that you did first, and what felt right earlier starts to feel wrong as other colors come into place. And then you're like, oh, it is more of, of what I had mixed first. And I just needed to trust that and wait for, 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 for the other things to sort of, um, the other colors to populate the, the, the canvas so that I would experience that 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 the way that that I do in real life. So, it's the the, the mixing with the knife has has uh, it's sort of cut through all that sort of unsureness and wondering and having to wait. Um, hmm. And uh, it's given it's just made it it's enabled me to make uh, color choices uh, with a lot more um, uh, confidence. So. Um, have you, do you, when you hold up the knife, are you holding it right to the object or are you holding it on the picture plane, the same picture plane as your canvas is sitting on? So I that, usually hold it, yeah, um, you have to be consistent with how you hold it. So usually I'll hold it, uh, I, I, I find the closer I get to the subject I'm trying to mix, the more accurate I can make the color. So I'll get, I'll get on top of my, I'll get up this close to the apple but I try to hold it at an angle that's consistent. Usually it's around 45 degrees. It's not going to be 90 degrees and it's not going to be tipped way back because if I could have the same color on my palette, on my knife, but it will be a different color depending on the angle I hit it because it's receiving a different amount of light. So, so now why wouldn't you I want it the same angle as your canvas? Because then it'll be too dark. But, but, I but, think. okay. Okay. I don't know. Well, because Wait, I mean, if no, your canvas I, isn't too dark, and so I'm only asking you because I'm genuinely curious. I'm not, I'm not arguing, you're obviously doing it right, right? But so I'm thinking if the canvas is vertical and you're mixing the color, it seems reasonable you'd want to hold the palette knife vertical so it gets the same lighting as the canvas gets. Yeah, you know what? I've kind of. But you obviously know what you're doing, so I'm just trying to figure yeah, out why it works. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know why exactly I go more of a tipped up thing, um, because I, I, I see exactly why what you're saying and why, and I don't know why I don't do it like this more vertically. Um, well, don't change I it because it's working. It. <laughs> well, I think what matters is that you're just doing whatever, however you're holding it, 
it, there, there's probably a certain range of angles, acceptable angles that, that will be okay. So like, I think if you're going like, like beyond, if you're like tipping it beyond vertical and you're coming too much toward yourself, that's gonna be problematic. And then if you're going too far this way, um, that could also be problematic. So I think there's probably a range of acceptable angles as long as it's within that, that sort of probably a small range of, of angles. And probably that range would probably be between vertical and like 45. And yeah. for whatever reason I do 45 or closer to 45. And what I find is that I think as long as you're within that range and as long as you're being consistent at, with your angle, then your colors will be consistent in your painting. Yeah, the consistency um, seems really critical. But how how is your canvas lit? Is it a skylight, a window? Uh, I have two. Uh, I have two twenty-inch square soft boxes um, uh, that I uh, that I use to light my, and I have them positioned kind of close to a forty-five degree angle to 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 my subject and, and, and me, and um, uh, and I'll either have one or both of them on depending on, on uh, the, the, the Okay, thing I'm doing. so maybe that's the answer. So if you've got a softbox behind you lighting your canvas, you're gonna have a more acute angle closer to the softbox, from your canvas to the softbox, right? But then as you get closer uh, yes, to, yeah. so as you get closer to the still bit. life, now, you're, now you've got a much more obtuse angle. Or to maintain the acute angle, you have to tilt the knife. Yeah, I guess that does make sense. I don't know. I'm just thinking. I, to, I always think so analytically. Yeah, no, yeah, no that, that's good. You're thinking about it deep, more deeply than I have. Um, well, you're working I, instinctually. It work, it, so what it sounds like you're doing is just intuitively going, okay, it's right at this angle, and that's fine. Because intuition, I sometimes we underestimate intuition, you know, how much... How important that yeah, is. Yeah, I don't even know stuff. that. It is. I, you know what? I'm, I'm remembering more now where I kind of got this from. It was um, Jacob showed it to me, and he saw it from this guy. It's called the Carter Method, and it was this artist who's like, he kind of. It was kind of a gimmick, um, not to be a jerk, but this artist had this sort of method that he created, where his whole his whole sort of uh, sort of marketing sort of angle was like you don't have to be a painter to make paintings. And he developed this little sort of tool, which is essentially what I've been talking about, uh, of how to sort of um, uh, mix and match colors in, in an environment. And he created this like little metal tool with it's like kind of like a little circle. And then there was like this little sort of tab on the other side that would uh, you would put your little color sample on and then you could hold it up to the thing and you would just make whatever, you just trial and error on your palette till you're, till you're hitting a match. And then you do that, you have to sort of mix and match enough sort of areas within the subject matter to sort of accumulate enough sort of uh, uh, color string to, to paint the thing. And then it was just kind of almost like a paint by numbers. You, you remember sort of, oh, this mixture corresponded to that part on the subject. And then you kind of just will put it in that area. And so, Jacob had bought that DVD. I remember he was watching it in the studio, and and uh, he did. I think he's like recognized that it was a little bit gimmicky, but also that there was something kind of interesting about that too. Like something can be a gimmick, but also still there can still be value to it. Um, yeah. 
And I think there is something to, to the way he was doing it. But I think in his thing, he was recommending you hold it at a 45. And I don't know that he explained why, um, but I think he was just saying, hold it at a 45 degree angle. And I think may, I don't remember specifically enough if he explained why or, hmm. uh, or if he just said, just be consistent. But um, uh, that's kind of where I got this sort of okay. little idea from. Okay. Um, and... Uh, so another thing um, I noticed in looking, I love looking at your studio because a studio is almost like looking in the brain of an artist, but I noticed that your palette is clean. So yes. are you using from day to day? Or are you just pulling out the tubes of paint that you're going to use that day? And then yes. at the end of the day, you're cleaning up completely. Yes. Um, and then what do you, what do you do? I mean, no, it seems like a trivial question, but it's a real thing when you're, you're an artist trying to make a living and a lot of my students are like squeezing out the tiniest little dollops of paint because the paint's so expensive. So what are you doing at the end of the day when you've got this paint that you haven't used and you just throw I, it away, sorry. I guess? Yeah, it, it's a, uh, I've accepted that that is a, uh, something that just comes along with my process. I, when I was a student, I would save and freeze the paints. Um, uh, if I had excess, I would, I would try to save it. Um, uh, and freeze them and use them the next day. And uh, sometimes, like if I really have an abundance and I and I and I know that I can use those colors again, I will I will do that occasionally, even now. But I'm I've gotten pretty good at knowing how much I need to put out. Um, but inevitably, I always do put out a little bit more than I need. You kind of if you're pre mixing in strings, you kind of need to. That just kind of happens automatically. You end up with a little bit more than you need. But I think I've gotten pretty good at, at at not overdoing it to a degree where I'm really feeling like wasteful or uh, where uh, it really hurts to sort of throw away whatever it is I'm, I'm uh, scraping off the palette at the end of the day. Yeah, you um, know, so it, it is a sacrifice, but it's I feel like it's not that to me. It's a worth it's it's worth the sacrifice. Yeah, I some I throw away a lot of paint too. In my palette, I keep the piles of paint on there, and then just when they dry out, I scrape them off and throw them away. But oh. it's amazing how many piles dry out before I'm done using them. So I mean, we all throw yeah. away paint, I guess. But yeah, it's it's um, you know, I, I for for keeping the palette clean, I uh, my first palette I had when I was a student, it was like it was so, like I didn't do that at all, and it was, it was just it turned into such a, a just a horrible it was it was just like the palette was causing more harm than good because it was just so dirty and, and and gross and so i i was i was like you know what i'm gonna get a new palette and i'm gonna just keep it nice and i because i was still so like young and i hadn't really created any habits yet i was able to kind of just like i was still very much a clean slate so i was able just to sort of create a little habit right at the beginning of always wiping and cleaning off my palette and always cleaning my brushes at the end of the day. And I've, I've, uh, I'm like a slob and lazy with so many other things in my life, but for oh, whatever reason, I was able to create a good habit with my, my brushes and my palette. No kidding. I never would have pegged you as a slob. I think people who, well, I, maybe that's not the right word. Okay. <laughs> Cause I imagine, I always imagine people who are so meticulous in, in, in control. And I mean that as a compliment, um, in painting, I always imagine them being that way in the rest of their lives, but I guess that's not always the case. Yeah, I don't. I it's like 
I think I'm pretty organized and, and, and I, I don't, I would never call myself like an organized or neat person. I, I'm like somewhere in the middle. Um, I, I'm kind of like, I'm not completely like sloppy and, and, and careless, but I'm also not like a neat freak by, by right. any means. I'm somewhere in the middle. And then with certain things, I go more in one to one end of the spectrum. And then in the, with other things, like the rest of my, if I panned around my studio right now, you would see that there's, there's a lot of crap around, <laughs> but sometimes I, I, if it, if it gets to a certain point, it, it starts to bother me. And then I have to like, okay, I need to, I need to put everything away because especially as a still life artist, when you're setting up a new still life, I have to like bring all this stuff up um, to try. It's like, I'm having my, it's, it's like a, a role. It's like a casting call. So I have to bring out all my actors and they all have to sort of try out for the part. And um, it, it ends up in like, I just, my studio is covered with, with glassware and plates and, and utensils and, and drapery and fruit, all these different, produce and stuff like that. So it does it certainly get to a point where I, I have to sort of uh, bring it back to 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 to, to, to whatever. Do you again. enjoy the the setup stage? And how long does it typically take you to set up a still life? Um I do enjoy that stage. Um it's also the most it's like the most I think it's kind of can be the most enjoyable and the most sort of uh, frustrating and difficult um, stage. And I think the, as, the more time goes on, it's kind of the longer I'm taking in, in stage. I've really, um, I think when I was like younger, I had all this sort of energy and motivation just to paint and just to bang out paintings and to get them out there. And I think that came at the cost of, um, of uh, sort of the, the quality of composition. And uh, I've sort of learned as time has gone on that I need to spend a lot more time in the planning and, and preliminary stages of designing the composition and making sure that things are, are, are ready to, 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 to move on to, to really making a, a real painting out of. And so now it's like, my my process used to be I come if I was like finished the painting the day before I would come in that morning with new stuff and and uh, probably by like before lunchtime I had something set up and I was like drawing after lunch um, hmm. but now it's like I don't that almost never happens now now it's like days usually of me sitting in front of these things really days like wow depressed and and unexcited and uh, uh, feeling like oh. it's like I, I'm trying to get more and more in a place where like I won't let myself move on until I feel really excited about what's in front of me and it has to sort of I'm trying to really listen to 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 what the the setup's telling me and what my feelings are about it and and I'm trying to sort of be less of like the the artist that just has to make a lot of paintings and more of the the artist that would would is trying to be more of a, more of a quality over quantity and um so to to me that means i I need to 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 spend more time composing and planning and and um I'm trying to sort of uh, 
really make sure that I feel excited about what I'm doing before I move forward. Um, I totally relate to that. All, <laughs> oh man, do I ever relate to that? I feel like I like, spent I don't, 20 years making... I don't need to make any more mediocre paintings. Exactly. I yeah. Mediocre <laughs> stuff. I want to, it's like, and it's too, it's the older you get, the more you value your time and how, and you become more aware of how, how brief our time is here. So it's like, gosh, I, 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 I'd rather have, I'd rather make five really good paintings than, than, than 20, like whatever paintings. Like it's, I want to, I really want to be more of that mind mindset um, now. And so I, I don't know. It's like, and, and it's really hard to, um, and I think too, it's like, the more we do this, the harder it is to ex get ourselves excited. And it's, I don't think it's like I was being dishonest with myself earlier in my career. It's more just like, I think my standards were lower because I wasn't as sensitive or as aware of what, what maybe is a good picture and what's not. So it's like, I'm more, probably things I would, I might set up now, like, like a few years ago, I would have probably been like, oh, wow, this is great. I'm going right, right for it now. But now I'm like, no, it's not there yet. Keep, keep searching, keep digging, keep, keep trying to, uh, just trying to, just dig deeper, really, and trying to um, make sure it's it's trying to make sure there's a certain level of impact, and and uh, and, and trying to be honest with yourself of, of whether or not that 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 you're feeling that. Then to sort of help myself further for in that uh, uh, respect is 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 really I'm see I I so see the value of making studies now, whereas I didn't before. Um, I thought that if it just looked good on the table, it would look good as a painting, and, and that's just not the case at all. Something can look great on the table, but that doesn't mean it's going to translate into a painting. So now I've, I've really realized that uh, I have to make studies, for, and I, and I pretty much do for everything, unless it's really small and simple. I, I might just go straight to finish, but I try to make studies now. And now I'm finding that I'm making all these studies that I'm not then turning into paintings because they'll be, after I make the study, I'm like, ah, there's just something here that that's not ready yet. So with some things I was like, really, and it, and it hurts because there'll be certain things within that uh, composition that you are excited about, but then there's other things, there's other problems that you can't resolve or can't figure out. So then you're like, well, I, I, I can't do that. I can't move forward because I haven't answered all the questions. I haven't solved all the problems here yet. So hopefully, I can maybe come back to this on another date. And so that's kind of more how I'm being, I have these like, I've had these studies and, and there's like little seeds in them, but they haven't been developed enough and they haven't grown enough into something yet. So I have to just wait maybe and, and hope that I can come back to it. And then there'll be something that, that I can maybe find, discover or be revealed to me that wasn't previously. So I, I think I'm valuing, the, the the idea that you have to really spend time with things and you have to live with things longer in order to really sort of see them for what they are. Um, and, and, and we all know what it's like to sort of be excited about a painting. We make a painting and then like a month, two months, however how much time later we look back and we're like, oh my goodness, I see all these things now that I didn't see before. And, and maybe how could I put myself in a position where I can be more sensitive to that stuff sooner than later so I don't have to just wait uh, for, for the hindsight to kick in. So, you know, that's making studies and that's living with the setup longer before you sort of 
before you jump into a long-term relationship with it. Yeah. Don't, do you feel like when you were a young painter, and I'm asking this because I felt this way, and I wonder if you might've experienced a similar thing. And you, and you, and I didn't know, I didn't realize it at the time that I felt this way, but I think one of the traps I fell into as a realist was I was just so excited to make a thing look like a thing mm. that I had arrived. Like I made that lemon look like that lemon. I made that face look like that face, you know, and it, and it was only after years of doing that, that I realized that's not art. Like I got to put more into it than that. You know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta really think about composition and concept and so on. Yeah. I, I think you said that, that, that perfectly. And I, I totally relate to that. And, um, and that makes sense too, because what, I mean, that's the first thing. I mean, the, the art aspect is kind of the last thing that you can address and, and for good reason, because the beginning, you're just learning the alphabet and how to sort of, what are the letters in this alphabet? And then after that, you're like, okay, I can start to sort of put some of these letters together to form some, some words. And then, um, uh, I can take some of those words to form some sentences and then, and, and then, but it's a build, you have to build on it and you have to start with those basic components, which is, you know, in the beginning, it's just making it look like they're just representing something in a realistic and believable way. And, and as you said, that's not art. That's just, uh, that's just a rendering mm -hmm. and rendering isn't there. There's more to art than just rendering. So. I think the initial hurdle, the battle that we all try to figure out is just how to render. And mm -hmm. then you learn how to render, you get better at rendering. And then it's like, okay, what's, and then I think too, it's like, once you figure out one thing, you're freed up to then start to think about other things. So it's like, when I was just trying to figure out how to make the thing look like the thing, there was no space in my brain left for anything else. I could, there's no, there was no opportunity to really think deeply about the art because I was just trying to make sure I got the right color in the right spot. And, but once you become uh, fluent at, at, at sort of speaking the language, then you can start to really say, well, what do I want to say with this language? And that's where I feel like I'm starting to get now where it's like, what do I, what do I care about? What means, what really means something to me and what do I want to say and, 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 and share. Uh, uh, so th that's a lot. That's the hard part. I think it's like, um, yeah, I that's agree. the hard part because it, you have to, you have to find it in yourself and, 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 and in the world that you live in. And um, I'm trying to, I think I have this problem of living too much in the past and uh, looking backwards too much. And I'm trying to like, do you mean in your looking backwards at your own life or you mean looking backwards at the past in the art? Picture making, like art and picture making. Okay. Cause I have such a love of old masters and stuff. And I think I probably like leaned on that too much with my own pictures. And it's like, it's like, it's like a lot of these pictures I look at, I'm like, you're just making, you're just trying to make, you're not in the right mindset with with how you're thinking about making pictures and you're just trying to replicate a moment that's already passed and you, you can't do that and you have to i'm more and more coming to the mindset that like i should be thinking more about what makes 
here and now special? Where, how do I find the art in the here and the now instead of just trying to sort of copy something that's already been done that I can't, will never be able to, to, to sort of copy uh, in the way that they did because mm. um, you can't repeat a moment. Um, and... Yeah, but don't you think that everything's been done? No, I don't. Really? I feel like once you've taped a banana to a wall, there's no... I don't there's I don't, no original I think, ideas left. I don't I don't know. I think I I have a feel I I know I get that and it's like I but I I think some I think people have always said that. I think they've always said there's nothing there's there's nothing new under the sun and then lo and behold someone discovers something new whether it's in painting or some other sort of field. I think there's always new things to discover um uh, uh as Jacob said once, I, I think uh, like even Rembrandt didn't solve all the mysteries of the human figure. So it's like there there is still more to, out there. But I think as time goes on, there's fewer. Maybe there's fewer things left to discover. But but I, I don't. I think though, time changes and and places change and people change. So that means that. That that in itself creates new opportunities for 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 image making because hmm. the pictures that are made are often you know they're connected to the world that they're 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 made in that that artist lived in a certain time in a certain place and the pictures he made or, he, or she made were were uh, in part influenced by that so we're in a new time in a new place now so what what can we find about that that's special or interesting or worth making a picture about and i think that's that's the hard i don't know like i don't know that's that that's the thing that it's like it, i think that's one of our jobs that we have to try to figure out but that's hard because we have to how do you create something that hasn't been created before how do you visualize something that hasn't been visualized before and and that's i think what that's what made Rembrandt special, Velasquez special, because they kind of were able to sort of express something in a way that sort of was different and kind of new. And um, and I, it's like I, I'm just more and more thinking about that. And I don't know how to do that, but I'm trying to think more about it. So um, I'm I'm for me, I think I'm like looking, like I have a lot of like old sort of antique things and sort of, I have like lots of replicas of like old Dutch glassware and blue and white china and, and stuff like that, that you see in all those old paintings. And I've been moving away from painting that stuff and more towards like finding the modern equivalents of that. What are the plates and cups and whatever that people are using now? And I don't wanna like, settle on gross ugly modern stuff i want to find the things that are modern but that are still beautiful and worth making a painting of um and i think the more i've looked into that the more i have well there are cool things that you can get now at that that at, at these um mm. like home goods stores and and uh and uh so i i, I i'm like this bowl for example this is a what I like, and what I like is when I can find something that's new, but still feels connected to the old stuff that I love. So this 
bull is a new modern contemporary just brute bull, but it's sort of reminiscent of of all that Chinese blue and white porcelain. Yeah. So to me, that's like, to me, it's like, oh, well, here I am honoring the tradition that I love and that I want to be a part of, but I'm also um, bringing in something that's new and, and different that, that wasn't done already in the, however many years ago. So I, I just... So you're talking I mean, about subtle changes though. Okay, so that, that I... That... I can get behind, you know, because I mean, I think every artist I've interviewed is doing something unique to them. And in that sense, everything hasn't been done. But the difference is you mentioned Rembrandt Velasquez. I don't think Rembrandt Velasquez were sitting in their studio thinking, hmm, what's the most, what's the most uh, controversial social issue that, I, that is happening right now? And how can I be as weird as possible and paint it so that I can be seen as different? Like, I think they yeah. were far more sophisticated than that, where they were yeah, just I being authentic agree. and being themselves. And they, and by being themselves, they stumbled on something that was unique to them. And be, since they're unique, their art is unique. Right. Oh yeah. To totally. I a hundred percent agree, agree with that. Uh, in my case, I had this sort of love of the, the that old world stuff and then the tradition and old masters and stuff. And it's almost like, yes, I love it. Yes, I want to connect to it, but I can't, I don't want to just make pastiches, which I think I was a little bit guilty of that, a little too much of just copying something that's already been done. Whereas now it's like, well, how can I connect to that and honor the thing that I love, but also putting giving my own sort of spin on it and and that that's kind of more what i mean yeah like, i get that that's what i thought you connecting, were saying yeah. but also moving forward connecting to something but moving it forward instead of just trying to relive in a relive a moment or trying to bring back a moment um that sort of thing um, yeah i was in a gallery not too long ago and the guy i mean this isn't my critique but this i think is a good example of what you're saying the owner of the gallery walked up to a painting um, and he said, see this landscape right here that's got, I don't, I may have to cut this because I don't want to offend anybody. I didn't say it. He says, see this landscape that's got cowboys in it that, and the cowboys are riding horses and they have, they have uh, clothing from the early 19th century. He's like, I would love to see this artist paint a cowboy standing next to his F-150 in the middle of a field, right? Wearing a baseball cap and uh, work boots, right? <laughs> Which is being the brother-in-law of a cowboy in Idaho. That is how they dress, most of them dress now. And um, he was making the point that it's the same subject. So in that sense, it's not revolutionary, but it's contemporary, it's new. It, and what yes. he's suggesting this artist do is contemporary, it's new, it's today, it's modern. And it I sounds like that's what you're getting at. Like you're saying, I want to still do still life that has a, the tradition attached to it, but I want to bring a modern flair to it. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I do. And, and, and whatever that means, that could mean like so many different things. And, and I'm not sure exactly probably what it means. Um, but it's it's 
it's um it's a it, what, i guess i know more what it isn't than what it is it's trying not to get sort of drawn into that what, what this guy was saying of just trying to um, uh, copy old paintings like right. kind of too closely um and um i i remember Braden Parrish once called um somebody um a fake old master mm-hmm. and it was kind of, um and i don't it, it was it was kind of and there was a lot of truth to i mean he could i think he could have made his point in a in, in a nicer <laughs> way a, yeah <laughs> yeah but i mean that's also if you know Graydon, that's kind of that's that's he is he is outspoken in, in that way i love Graydon. i think i think he's hilarious um and he and he's and he's a really smart guy who thinks a lot about things and um and i i think that was uh at the time, I didn't. I was like, and I still kind of waver a little bit in, in these because I I'm, I'm hesitant to to want to wanna make rules about things because I think you can sort of handcuff yourself a little bit like that way, and 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 you can also if you're too sort of in your head about what pictures you should and shouldn't make, that can kind of get in the way, and maybe you'll just stifle something inside of you. Whereas if you just sort of I think at the end of the day, you have to just follow what you're passionate about and what excites you and what you're interested in, whatever that and whatever comes of that comes of that. And, um, but I, I don't, it's like such a weird thing. And, and I'm constantly like back and forth a little bit. Um, and I, I do feel more recently. I, I am doing more. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel more recently, like I'm trying to like, trying to be more mindful of like, what picture should I be making? But I try to be careful with that thinking because there is no picture I should be making. I should be making whatever picture I want to make. And if and if some people are going to call that a fake old master painting, then that's that's okay because no painting anyone's going to make is going to be appealing to everybody. Someone's going to have a problem with. It. Someone's not going to like it. So you have to just think more. I think about what what it, what what does exciting and interesting to you. Um, and, and less so about what what should I make or or what does what belongs in the world today that sort of thing. So I don't, it's like I say those things, but then I also see the other side of it, and I it's it's also it's like I don't I feel so like I don't know more than anything. <laughs> yeah, join the club. You know, it's like what if nostalgia is the thing that drives you, right? What if, and that's your, that's your, I I hate the word authentic self, but that's, or the phrase, but you know, it's like, I I've interviewed, uh, Aaliyah Chapin who does these coolest modern figurative paintings. And the the stuff she's doing now is even more modern. She's getting funkier all the time. And I freaking love it. I wish I could own everything she painted. And then compare that to say Alex Venezia, who I also interviewed who has this very nostalgic quality about his paintings. And he paints like a 19th century master. Yes. I wouldn't want to change either of them. Right. It's like, you know, who cares if one looks like it's from the 19th century. So, but at the yeah. same time, I've been where you're at, where it's like, Oh, maybe it's too old fashioned what I'm doing. Um, so I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. There's always this conflict, this inner conflict, like are, what is what I'm doing relevant? Right. Yeah. And that, and that's something I think we all have to be careful with that because what does relevant really mean? It just means, I think it kind of just means popular. What's popular. And 
if you're just chasing what's popular, you might never be figuring out who you are. You might just be trying to please of some perceived demand instead of trying to please yourself um, uh, or, or, or trying to sort of, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's so hard to, 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 to know what to do and what you should do. And it's hard to listen to yourself. It's hard to know yourself. And I think that's part of what the job of the artist or anyone is to do is to, who am I? What am I about? And what do I want to express and say and do um, and show? Um, and there's so many external influences and some of them are good, some of them are bad, and it's hard to, hard to evaluate all of that and to sort of know what, what we should do. And, um, and that to, to your saying like, yeah, Alex, Denisia has more of, you know, the 19th century French kind of academic vibe, um, whereas the other girl might not, there might Aaliyah not be Chapin. a historical sort of thing that she lines up with. Um, and, and, and that's both are, of course, fine. And, and there's so many people that love the look of the, the 19th century. Um, so it, I think it's just, it, I think at the end of the day, we should be less concerned about what we think we should be doing and we should just be following what 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 feels good to us and then hope that we can find a, a niche for that or a market for that you know what it's so great i say this too much and it's becoming cliche but one of the the thing i love about this podcast is how much i learn but so in this particular podcast i feel like i'm um I'm almost sitting on a couch in a shrink's office because I'm like, you're hitting, you're, you're seriously hitting all those buttons for me as far as my own stuff that I've gone through. Cause you know, I'm a, I paint biblical scenes. Like who, for all I know, Graydon Paris was talking about me, right? Like, and, and how do you make biblical scenes co uh, contemporary? And do I even want to do that? But, yeah. but, but what's really refreshing is to hear you say it. And then to think about my reaction to what you, to when you said it, because I'm mm. someone who loves contemporary work like Aaliyah Chapin's who I'd mentioned or Zoe Frank, right? People mm -hmm. who I love, I, I love how they still do realism, but also have very contemporary quality to it. And even as someone who loves that stuff and who's even experimented with it, when you said that you're thinking about changing, my heart sank because I thought, oh gosh, you can't change your stuff is too perfect. Right. And that's coming from someone who likes to contemporary, more contemporary artists. So, so then what, what I'm, I guess what I'm learning from my own thoughts is that, that there's a place for you and there's a place for Aaliyah and it's, it's all relevant. Like, uh, right. It, it, to me, um, for whatever that's worth, that's what I've learned from our conversation today, just based on my reaction to you. Cause my, my heart literally sank when you're like, well, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe making more contemporary. I'm like, no, 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 don't do it. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't mean, I didn't mean in any sort of radical way. I meant I, like, but that's uh, what I thought though. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'll show you. I kind of, I'll show you kind of what a little bit of it. Uh, and it's not like a, but you get my point though. Right. <laughs> oh, definitely. 100%. And, it's like uh, it's just something that I think probably every artist feels conflicted about to, to some yeah, degree. And, yeah. Um, because uh, 
again, we get all these different voices in our heads um, and it's hard to know which ones to listen to and which ones not to. And uh, sometimes we find ourselves going more leaning this way, sometimes that way. And it's all different. So I, I meant more like, like, like this sort of thing. Like tilt, like tilt it, tilt it like toward the camera a little. There you go. Yeah. Like, um, like a little more like I've been like, okay. Yeah, um, that is a little more maybe contemporary. Maybe I don't do the black background. Let me try some things with maybe a more of a neutral, like middle value background. And let me get some sort of more, I've been messing around with sort of like these lighter sort of uh, fabrics on the tabletop and um, the, the sort of the more modern bowl and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. I don't, I still feel like it's, a, a painting that I would make, but it's it's sort of leaning a little more towards, um, uh, I guess uh, it's more that the um, some of the things the the uh, objects in there are more sort of uh, contemporary. Right. It's not so much how I'm going to paint or, or or present them. And like here's another little thing that I've um, was doing. So it, it's like. It's certainly that is more contemporary, more contemporary feel than this has, um, I think. Um, yeah, you know, they so I, they don't look like it, but they're leaning more toward the like uh, Antonio Lopez Garcia kind of quality where his still lifes are very contemporary, obviously. Um, yeah, but um, just the color, the color and value range is different. The compositions yeah, are yeah, more too. more modern looking for some reason why though what is it about it that what is it about all those things that makes it look more contemporary because it's still a plate I and oranges a, i think it's a minute it's like a minimalism i think modern and is? contemporary is like everything is like more minimal everything's kind of lighter and cleaner and mm. um so i i don't i'm trying to sort of how do it's like I'll tell you, there's this um, interior designer who I've recently discovered, and there's something about him that I really like. And his name is Colin King, and he's this young, like, he's got to be in his 20s. He's like this young, like, sensation in that world. And he's just, uh, he has, um, uh, follow him on Instagram, and he's, he does, like, he's an interior designer. So he does, he designs homes and interiors and um, it's not even something I'm even that aware of, but for whatever reason, I, I've, I, because of still lifes, I, I, I do follow certain, uh, like home goods sort of stores and, uh, and some interior designers because it's, it's kind of relevant to what I do. And, um, for whatever reason, there's something about him that I really like, and he's totally modern, but there's something very, He's good at sort of throwing in these little sort of traditional sort of sort of moments in in the spaces that it creates. And one example I'll, I'll give you: he recently was um, designing this space, and I don't know, I guess it was like an apartment in New York or whatever. But he was able to borrow these 17th century still lifes from Sotheby's that were uh, going up for auction, and he was able to borrow them and put them in the space for this photo shoot that he was doing. And it was like the coolest like blending of old and new mm. and it was like really cool and inspiring to see that and he's really good at doing that with other things and he's kind of like a still life artist in his own life in his own right he's like he'll do a lot of like arrangements on tables with like stuff 
like uh, like fruit and and so some of the wares that that uh, that that, that uh, um, I think he's associated with a comp he's some he's associated with some home goods store and a lot of times they'll collaborate so he'll take their stuff arrange it and then they do a photo shoot and then they I don't know what they do with it um but it's really I like his sort of sensibility and the way that he sort of takes kind of traditional elements and makes it, but puts them in a sort of a newer and fresher sort of uh, environment. And to me, it's like this perfect, not oh, some of the stuff I don't care about, but a lot of times he has this cool, to me, this balance of, of, of the old and the new. And it's like, it's, it's be, kind of become a recent inspiration to me with my own um, uh, work. And, um, so I, it's I, I I like too, uh, and he also talked about how he's become uh, uh, he's sort of uh, I don't know at what point, but it was regarding the, that those old still lifes that he was doing the photo shoot of in the space that he created, and he was talking about how studying these old still lifes has made him a better interior designer because he's gotten all this insight into uh, arranging things and um, uh, and and how to pair that to sort of go, make things kind of go together and, and this and that and uh, he's able to have this reverence and sort of uh, awareness of, of the past and he's able to sort of draw from that and pick and choose the things that he likes and then creates something kind of new and modern and contemporary with that uh, so he's he's this this balance that that he mm. can create, and I, I like that balance, and I that's sort of what I mean when I'm I have these thoughts of of, of trying to maybe make pictures that feel maybe more newer, for whatever for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, and that and I don't mean um, trying to be someone I'm not, or 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 trying to do something I'm not interested in, or or something radically different. I don't think. Uh, it would still be like I love the the, the the 17th century still life vibe, and I think my paintings will probably always feel somewhat connected to that. But I want to sort of, in in a way, break away from that a little bit. Um, so you're uh, not going to um, squeeze all the pulp from that basket of fruit and put it all over your naked body and jump into a canvas? No, though. I'm not going to. I hate that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so not a. Uh, I'm so not a. Uh, 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 I don't like the, the the modern contemporary art world at all. And I also I don't. To such a degree, I don't know anything about it. I've never studied it. I've never looked at it. I, I don't pay any attention to it. Um, so no, I, that's so. I'm that's so not. Uh, <laughs> okay. That's good. not what I mean by what I'm saying. Okay. Well, hey, man, we've been talking for two and a half hours, so I really oh, appreciate wow. it. It's been a great conversation, but I've got one final question for you. If All you right. could give a young aspiring artist one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, well, if you're, if you actually think you want to do this, which better make sure you do. Uh, <laughs> then you better do it like full on because uh 
the only grit. people that are able yeah the only people that are able to sort of stay in this 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 space and in this world are the are, are the workers the ones that work hard all day every day and to me uh it it's it's the grinders it's the uh it's the people that show up every day and put in the hour not and not even just showing up every day it's like you have to show up and then you have to work not just going through the motions i know people that go to their studios all the time but they don't really have anything to show for it at the end of the day so it it's you have to uh it's just to me it's all about um work ethic and 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 uh persevering over the long haul it, it's it's not it's a marathon and and um if you want to one if you want to learn how to do it that's what you got you got to just show up every day for 10 years and then maybe you'll start to be making some paintings that that don't stink and then after that you have to turn it into a career unless you're just a rich person, which most of us aren't, um, you have to find a way to to uh, not only make enough, a certain, not only to make a certain amount of paintings in a year, you have to sell a certain amount of paintings in a year. Otherwise, you're going to have to get a real job um, or do something else, and then you're not going to be able to paint as much. So it's it is so hard to 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 do, to do that. And um, the only way I think to make it happen is is just through through uh, uh, putting in the, the hour. It's like the secret is there is no secret. It's, it's, it's working hard all day, every day for a very, 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 like for your whole life. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's perseverance over the long haul. Um, and uh, that'll, I think that trumps talent. Um, the, uh, it's like I, I think when we're younger, we value talent too much almost, and then um, we think, uh, oh well, well, I'm I'm just either good at this or I'm either not good at that, and then you, you kind of don't understand until you're older that it's it's uh, uh, it, it's that it's work, it's it's hard work over a long time. That's how people get good at whatever it is that they're good at. It's not just they were born that way. Uh, it's not just the talent. Certainly, talent's a big component, but it, it's it's really the uh it's that daily grind that's the only way to get anywhere whether it's painting or or anything yeah i appreciate that you know you know one thing because i've been self-employed my whole adult life pretty much and i had a handyman business when i was in college and then that kind of morphed into a custom furniture business because i got a few jobs making i'm like i can make you furniture There's, i had clients that needed furniture i can make you furniture so i started making furniture for people and then i became a painter Ironically, painting is the most lucrative of the three. But um, what I found is just being self-employed is is what's so hard about it. I mean, if you if you don't want to work very hard, work for somebody else and just stay under the yeah. radar. But if you want to be self-employed, you better be willing to bust your butt. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm friends with Greg Mortensen. You you guys yeah. are buddies, right? Yeah, yeah. He I, he. Um, I remember I was I talked to him many years ago. He was we were talking about you for some reason. Uh, I don't remember, but um, I think he was talking. Talk, and he, Greg's the same way, but he was talking about what a what a worker you are and how just the hours you put in every day. Yeah, seventy hours a week, probably. <laughs> wow. Yeah, a lot. Not all painting. Uh, yeah, Not all painting, but 
Oh, I mean, hey, when you, there's so many other things we have to do as painters when it's your, when it's your job. Uh, um, yeah. But yeah, it's, um, I'm lucky to, to, it's crazy to feel like, uh, it's like you never feel, it's, it's always, I always feel like it could end at any moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, same. I, I've sold my life. I'm never going to sell another painting. Uh, uh, like, and, uh, and then somehow you, you sell another, it's like, it's almost like you never feel like comfortable. You never feel like you've arrived. It's only feeling like, Oh, I, I lived to paint another day. And, uh, but tomorrow <laughs> it all be gone. So it's such yeah. a, it's a hard, it's such a, it's stressful because you don't know when your next sale is coming. Whereas if you have a nice cushy corporate job, you've got, uh, got your your salary you've got benefits um but it's uh I, I feel so lucky to to be able to do this and to um it, it's weird i still like remember going into jacob's studio the, the first day and gosh that was so long ago but it doesn't feel that long ago and um and uh i think again to whatever young people listening it's just uh you can you can uh, learn things that you never thought you'd be able to learn and do things you never thought you'd be able to do if you're willing to just sort of uh, show up each day and and, and uh, put in the work. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate that. Man, it was so cool to get to know you. I've always been a huge fan, but you know, talking to you makes me even like your work better. It was really, really an honor to get to know you. So I appreciate you being on the podcast. Oh, well, thanks so much, Jeff. It was it was really nice being here. I, I wish I wish we could have talked more more about you. Uh, maybe you can have me on next time, and we can talk about your work. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe, and if you could leave a comment or review, that really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.